this episode, Justice League America number 47 and Justice League Europe number 23. Cover dated February 1991. Hello, and welcome to the 47th episode of Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name's the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host. But guess what? I have brought along some friends. In fact, each episode, I invite two different guest hosts to help me tackle a couple of issues of JLI. And this time, I'm very excited to say both are real friends, like in real life. So this is cool. Now, we're going to chat with my second co-host in a little bit. But for now, my first co-host today is a returning guest. Now, this guy, uh, oh my gosh, we've been close friends for 30 years now. In fact, we became friends the year after this comic came out. That's how long we've been friends. Anyway, uh, he's a professional trivia host. He's a YouTube phenom where he teaches board game systems. He's a history and geography savant, and he taught me to appreciate the JLI even more. Folks, please help me welcome Mr. Patrick Pence. Welcome back to the New York Embassy, Pat. Thanks for being here, man. How you doing? I'm doing great. Shag, how are you, man? What has it been? 40 issues? Oh, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. It's only been 39. How you doing, buddy? Right, is that your subtle way of complaining that it took me this long to bring you back? I would never complain. I would never be so bold but I am honored to be invited back at all. So thank you very much for having me back. He's so full of crap, people. We get together and we role play. And every once in a while, and by every once in a while, I mean every game session, he's like, so when am I coming back to the show? And <laughs> This is true. Please understand, Pat, that you, of all people, have the least to complain about. What issue did you cover, Pat? I covered issue number eight, Moving Day. The single most popular episode, or issue, not episode, because that, that would have been you, but the single most popular issue in the entire JLI run was given to you as a gift. And here you are, whining like a petulant child that you didn't get another bite at the apple. So there you go. You get general glory. Take that, buddy. I will take general glory because anything before breakdowns is gravy to me. So thank <laughs> you for having me back. And yes, I was wondering if you were going to bring up our little side gig with with our role-playing games. Uh, so we can talk about that later, but we are we are definitely having a blast with that. And uh, yes, yes, I do. I stare daggers when I see that schedule board that you've got with all of these great co-hosts, and I'm, I'm relegated to the dustbin. So I'll take what I can get. I'll take the scraps. Very few people get to be on the show twice, so just uh, shut your trap there, all right, buddy? It is trapped shut. As I teach my daughter, which you've probably heard me say in front of her, is you get what you get and you don't pitch a fit. So there we go. All right. Now, Pat... Pat and I could bicker all night long, which we actually do quite frequently. But to avoid that, and you guys haven't listened to it, we're going to jump right into our sponsors, folks. This episode of JLI Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping on orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode, we select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the InStockTrades library. Usually, it's tied into that month's JLI issue in some way, shape, or form. This episode, I picked Mr. Miracle the Source of Freedom hardcover. Now, this is a recent DC trade paperback uh, spinning out of DC Future State. It's all about Shiloh Norman uh, becoming the Mr. Miracle of Tomorrow. And it takes place, you know, in the in the very 
current or, or I guess future state version of the DC Universe. So he's very different than the Shiloh Norman we're going to be reading about in this issue of Just League America. But I felt like, you know, there's some synergy there. I feel like that'd be a great opportunity to promote this trade. I've read the first issue. I found it pretty engaging. I hear great things about the rest of the series. So right now, you can get on in-stock trades. Uh, normally goes for $24.99, but you can get it for 42% off. So it's only $14.49. Now it's 152 pages. It's written by Brandon Easton. Art is by, uh, oh wow, I'm going to slaughter this. Uh, Fico... Asio? Yeah, I probably got that wrong, folks. Anyway, a full-color hardcover. Uh, again, very engaging story about Shiloh and his um, challenges in, in the world, in the world that's not necessarily on his side. So, uh, check it out. Mr. Miracle, The Source of Freedom, hardcover. Now, Pat, this is the part where I ask the quality guests if they brought an in-stock trades recommendation, knowing that you, that I have for 30 years, you know, I'd like to assume you bought run, but come on, it's you. Uh, I mean, I think you still owe me some of my old role-playing handbooks that you never gave back. I don't know. Did, did you bother to? I, I I will get them back to you, I swear. But yes, yes, indeed, I do have a selection for our group tonight. And it actually ties in. Yours tied in with the Mr. Miracle and the the Shiloh Norman that we're going to see. But this actually ties in a couple of different ways for me with this story and for what I do on my YouTube channel, which is one of the the game systems that I play is World War II related. And I'm a World War II connoisseur. I, I know quite a bit about the historical comings and goings of World War II. And I love to game that system. So tonight, I'm going to talk about DC Goes to War. It is a compilation of several of DC's uh, World War II-related titles. It is a uh, compendium of 352 pages hardcover. It's uh, 42% off the $39.99 regular price of $23.19. And you will get stories such as Sergeant Rock and uh, Enemy Ace and the Boy Commandos, Black Hawk, and several others. But it's got specific, very historical no pun intended, issues that are related to all of the DC happenings in their version of World War II. So definitely check that out. Oh my God, I'm looking at the list here, man. I, first of all, Enemy Ace, you're, you're not going to go wrong. Right there, out of the gate. Great stuff. I, I've read a lot of the Enemy Ace stuff. Never read a bad story. Sergeant Rock, almost always fantastic. Blackhawk, I mean, that's a great pick. Way to, and really, uh, you know, supporting the general glory aspect of that. So I, that's a really great one, Pat. Thank you. Well, thanks, man. So uh, for this and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Now, folks, this episode is also sponsored in part with your help through our Patreon. Because, you know, running the Firewater Podcast Network with so many shows requires a whole lot of online hosting and other expenses. So a while back, we realized we needed some help. So we launched the Patreon, and you folks really stepped up to help keep the network going, and we really sincerely appreciate that. So if you're enjoying the JLI Podcast, the best way to support the show is by visiting our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. And while you're there, please consider supporting the network. You know, in certain tiers, you get mentioned on your show of choice, just like these folks who asked to be recognized on the JLI podcast. So our thanks to Chris Lewis, David Ace Gutierrez, DC Dave, Devin Clancy, George Van Note, Gord Tolton, John Coos, John Ross Haynes, Kevin Wetter, Mark Baker-Wright, Martin Gray, Matt Ev, Maxwell Traver, Michael Crouch, Michael Zomkowski, Patrick McMullen, Roger Preeb, Rudy Gastillo, Sean Ross, Superman Radio Revisited Podcast, and Tim Price. Oh, thank you all so much. And again, folks, please consider visiting our Patreon at patreon.com slash FW Podcasts. 
All right, now I need you folks to go out on the social medias. You know, tag us, JLI Podcast. We're on uh, Twitter and on Facebook. It's Just Like International, Blah Ha Ha Podcast. You can use our hashtag, FW Podcast. We want to hear your thoughts on General Glory. We want to hear your thoughts on Patrick. And, I mean, there's a lot to, to unpack there all by itself. But we want to hear, just in general, your feelings on the JLI. And be part of this conversation. Because, you know, it's all about that community of online JLI fans. So remember, JLI Podcast, get out there and let us know your thoughts. Or go out to our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI, and you can leave your comments on the show posts as well. Now, this is the part of the show normally where we chat with the guests, and I ask them their history with the JLI. However, in this case, you can just go right back to episode number eight and hear Pat's origin with the JLI. And once again, I have to give you credit, Pat. You know, back in the day, I don't, I don't remember the specifics of the conversation. I don't remember the specific day it happened or any of that, but you imbued your passion for the JLI onto me. You know, I, I was working at the comic shop. I certainly, I was probably reading Just Like Europe by that point, I would guess, but your passion for Justice League America just spilled over onto me. Probably at the same time you spilled, like, I don't know, pizza sauce from when you're eating those uh, breadsticks <laughs> you need to store all the time. I don't know. They were delicious, man, and so nutritious. They smelled up the whole store. Oh my god, it was terrible. Yeah, I was invited to eat them outside many times. <laughs> yeah, you ever go to a comic shop and the employers are working, but they've got some friend who's hanging out in the store for like hours at a time? That was Pat. That that was me. <laughs> but again, I, I owe you a huge debt of gratitude for helping to uh, blossom my love for the JLI. I really appreciate it. Well, I like to think that I was paying it forward because I was instilled my progenitor for the Justice League America, the Blaha. Ha uh, era was actually uh, our good friend Peter, and uh, really? this is a shout out to him. Yes, he's the one that, as I was getting ready in my senior year of high school, he was the one that uh, you know he was showing me the the great Adams Hugh, Adam Hughes cover, and and he actually he and I went to a convention. I think I mentioned this way back in in episode eight, but we we met Kevin McGuire. He was just <gasps> oh. he was just. At our local con, he was just, and this is when he was overworking on, I believe, Captain America. He had jumped over, mm. he was doing that on, on the side or on the sly, but Peter recognized him, and we walked up and we said, hey, Kevin McGuire, and he's like, hey, if you go get that Justice League poster over there, you know, the big uh, 1987 class of 1987 yep, yep. one, yep, then I'll sign it, and we both got our signed. So that is a, a treasured possession that uh, I have, but that's because Peter got me involved with the Justice League at the time so uh, i had seen it in 87 but he was the one that really instilled it and then at that point i started reading it heavily yeah it's amazing because you know peter was my guru on role-playing games you know which which we're doing now but it was star wars he was my guru on star wars role-playing games i would call him and bounce ideas off him and he would give me coaching and all that's amazing how much he had such an influence on our lives and now i feel bad because i yelled at him on the phone the other day right (laughs) well you know you know one man's life touches many others george bailey Zuzu's Paddles. All right. So let's get into this, folks. So you can check this out. Uh, if you don't have this issue of Justice League America, you can go to our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com, and we'll have a gallery post there with some of the images from this issue. However, we're only going to do a few because, I mean, let's face it, folks, this comic is super, super readily available. You know, obviously, you can find the back issues. You can buy it digitally on Comixology. It's available on DC Infinite if you're a subscriber. It's all there. So you have no excuse for not being able to get your hands on this comic. So, again, just a few scans on the website. 
All right. So this is Justice League America, number 47, published by DC Comics, cover dated February 1991. Seriously, yeah, we became friends a year after this came out. That's crazy. Uh, on the shelves, December 18th, 1990. Cover price is $1 for shiny quarters. Now, the cover is by Adam Hughes and Carl Story. And uh, Pat, you want to describe the cover for us? Sure. Uh, this is one of those ones where, and we'll talk about this a little bit later with the art, but uh, as I mentioned, the Adam Hughes covers during this period were just incredible. This one is not quite, you know, the where he's right up in there, like last issue, where you're just seeing so much of Guy Gardner's facial expressions with the General Glory comic exploding out. But this one is, this is, this will do, but this is what we, I guess, consider, I'm sure they have a name for this standing of characters, where you have the gallery presentation of General Glory right up there, giving the V for victory, and behind him, uh, to his right, you see John Jones and B, aka a fire and way in the back almost as an afterthought you see blue beetle and then to his left uh, ascending backwards behind him is ice and we see orion which i had completely forgotten about orion and we'll talk about that but that's not orion that's not orion that's light ray oh my god see, see? okay <laughs> well we'll take that again and behind her, no no no, light- no 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 hold on we're gonna keep it because <laughs> my note as well said light ray he's never on the cover so no okay <laughs> yeah i'm with but- you buddy I don't know this guy at all. And then there's way, again, my two favorite characters way in the back as an afterthought. We got Guy Gardner, the main man himself. Well, according to him, anyway. Right. He would say he's the main man over Lobo. But, you know, you you take what you can get. But uh, it is a very, like, I'm looking at a digital version of it here. Mm -hmm. And it's very heavy on the, it's dark on mine. It's very dark hues such as purples and blues and very uh, dark umbers and orange. So it's an interesting cover, but it's very subdued. So for me, it doesn't really pop with that Adam Hughes content that I would expect normally. So I'm, I'm also looking at digital. I'm looking at the digital version on Comixology, which has all been redone and the color's been touched up and that, the, that paper bleed where it steals the ink, basically. That's all not part of what I'm seeing. So mine is super vibrant. So like, for example, I'm, I, I have the printed copy in my left hand and I'm looking digital on my right here. And the printed one, like John Jones's cape is almost purple. It's like super dark. Whereas in the printed copy, it's almost the same color as General Glory's gloves. The blues are very, very close. It's very bright blue. It's uh, I, I, First of all, the, the, the way they're standing, I would call that like a chevron kind of thing with General, yes, with General yes. Glory being the point. And the thing that strikes me about this, which, which I, is very different from a, any Adam Hughes cover I can remember, is there is so much shadow going on with all the side, not on General Glory, but on all the other characters. It, it, they're almost muted with shadows and it grants them like a real gravity. Like, if you look at Guy Gardner's face, or you look at Blue Beetle's face, there's almost no definition. It's all done in shadow, and it just makes it look that much cooler. I I just think it looks really great, and it's not something I've seen Adam Hughes do before. I started making notes, like, which were the best-looking characters, and I realized they all look good, actually. I really like it. Yeah. If you saw this on our spinner rack at your local convenience store, it would grab you. I mean, it does grab you, especially if you had not come at it from issue 46 previously, right? If you had not seen the Guy Gardner expression for the part one of general of glory bound 
and you just saw this one, you'd probably still be like, who is this guy? You know, what's going on here? And you'd pick it up. So it does grab you. Yeah, well, in 1990 slash 1991, General Glory is not the kind of character we wanted to see. You know, we wanted Lobo. We wanted Edgy. We wanted, you know, Venom and all whatever, right? We wanted all the slashing. So this guy stands out even more so because you're like, what is this about? Why? Why would they make this character the focus? That's not what comics are about nowadays, which is what makes him stand out, which I think also is part of what Hughes is going for with the contrast of General Glory being so clear and everyone else being, you know, dark and shadow. I feel like that's there's a, a purposeful contrast there. Well, yeah, I mean, that is definitely the word, both in content contrast and colors. I mean, these are very contrasting. You know, you, you see oranges in the background for, for, I guess, what is sort of the sunset, but it is very contrasting heavy with all of that shadow. So, I mean, even when you look at Guy Gardner back there, he's got a bowl cut, but you can't see his face, so, you know, you can't tell where that hairline ends. Mm-hmm. And Blue Beetle, you can't see his eyes. He's just glowing orbs where the, where the goggles are and everything. Yeah. Now, I'll also point out there's a there's a red, white, and blue theme going on in the, the Glory Bound name, but also in the word America. So you've got a in little America, bit of that. Yeah. Yep. And you've got your corner box is fire and ice together. I love those corner boxes at the time. They, they didn't do them for yes. long, but I absolutely adored them. So on yours, I, I've got, I've, obviously I've got what is probably a scan of the original hard copy, but I've got a UPC symbol. What do you have in there? Is that the, the JLI or the JLA uh, shield in there? It's the JLI shield. Uh, it's the one where the JLI goes uh, horizontally down, like top left corner to bottom right corner. Oh, right. I, I love when they would substitute those in when you would buy them you know, directly from mass market. Oh, yeah. Uh, we're actually, uh, my next guest, who's far more interesting, actually for JLE, uh, we actually have a very interesting conversation about the UBC code on that comic. So stay tuned for oh, that. Oh, okay. Is that Nathan? Shh, you're giving the secret away. Yes. My next oh, guest okay. is, my next guest will also be a member of our role-playing group. Woohoo! <laughs> so let's get into this, man. So plot and breakdowns by Keith Giffen, script by J.M.D. Mateus. Guest penciler is Linda Medley, still listed as guest right now. Interesting. Uh, inker, John Beatty. Letter is Bob LaPan. Colorist is Gene D'Angelo. Assistant editor is Kevin Dooley. Editor is Andy Helfer. And there's a specific credit. This is General Glory, created by J.M.D. Mateus and Keith Giffen. The issue itself is called General Glory Fights Again. Pat, you want to start us off? Sure. So when you open it up, you get the wonderful Washington Square Arch. Our intrepid heroes are on their way to Washington Square Park in Lower Manhattan to watch Mr. Miracle perform one of his fantastic death-defying escapes. Blue Beetle, Fire, and Ice hover overhead in Beetle's bug, watching the locked safe, waiting for Scott Free to wow the crowds and emerge unharmed. But when it appears the trick has gone awry, Beetle laughs hysterically, our first blah-ha-ha, and grabs the safe with the bug's grappling arm. Beetle plans to save Scott from embarrassment by transporting the safe back to the embassy where he can assist Scott in escaping the safe. Unfortunately, our heroes have misread the situation. From the audience, we see Scott Free and Oberon chasing after the League. Turns out, inside the safe was Scott Free's protege, Shiloh Norman, the new Mr. Miracle. While suspended hundreds of feet above New York City, Shiloh emerges from the safe and hangs on for dear life. Inside the bug, Fire realizes that it's not Scott, but a, quote, imposter. Fortunately, fellow League member Light Ray is flying nearby and safely brings Shiloh into the bug. Meanwhile, back at the embassy, an argument is ensuing following General Glory's appearance. Martian Manhunter argues that General Glory is simply a comic book character, while Guy Gardner argues they should recruit the General to join the team. 
The argument becomes heated, and the general reprimands Guy for losing his temper and his foul language. I love that part. Guy humbly apologizes and calls the general Sir to the shock of everyone else. In the monitor room, Elrond intercepts an incoming message from Blue Beetle about Scott Free, which is immediately followed by another message from Scott Free himself, stating that he'll explain everything at the embassy. Then we shift to an abandoned warehouse in Bayonne, New Jersey. There we find Schmidt, General Glory's old Nazi foe, is putting the final touches to his latest super weapon, a super immolatorial laseronic death ray. In usual JLI fashion, he drops a sensitive power unit, causing a huge inferno to engulf the entire building. Well, I'll take it from here. So back at the embassy, chaos reigns, with just about everybody shouting at each other and multiple arguments occurring at the same time. Now, Scott Free and Oberon arrive at the embassy to explain that they're training Shiloh to become the new Mr. Miracle. Around the same time, Maxwell Lord arrives after being out of town and tries to bypass the chaos, but fails to sneak past Martian Manhunter's telepathy. Elrond interrupts the teams, arguing to inform them of the fire in Bayonne, New Jersey. Uh, the team flies in the bug to the burning building, there, General Glory joins the team in their efforts to put out the Inferno, while Shiloh is relegated to simply observing as he doesn't have enough experience. Well, the team manages to slow down the fire a little bit, and then General Glory runs into the building after hearing there might be more people inside. He runs right into a defunct Nazi Uberbot as it topples over on him. Then, Orion uses boom tube technology to transport a deluge of water from the East River to douse the blaze. Guy's convinced the flood killed General Glory, which results in a brawl between Guy and Orion. Then, later back at the embassy, Maxwell Lord and Martian Manhunter discuss how Guy and Oberon's brawl quickly ended as General Glory walked out of the building unharmed, waving to the cameras after rescuing a bulldog. Maxwell Lord tells Jean that he can see promise in General Glory and would consider adding him to the team. Next issue, The Last Nazi Story. Would we kid about a thing like that? So there we go. That is the issue part two of the General Glory saga. Now, I got to tell you, when doing some research for this issue, obviously people don't read as closely as you would think they would, because somebody wrote this whole online recap of this issue, swearing that this issue took place in France, because they thought that was the Arche de Triomphe, uh, which I probably said wrong. And they were talking about, I guess, Bayonne is also a city in France as well. So uh, that's really, I, well, I know they're not wrong. I know, but it's like, wow, uh, totally misread that entirely. And everyone's speaking English. I mean, just, it's pretty funny. So I got to ask you, sir, what'd you think of the issue? Okay. Well, uh, I'm going to, I mentioned the bait and switch. Now I've had this long standing personal grievance with the way the comics industry gets this amazing cover art. Come on in, kid. This is going to be awesome. So I get the Adam Hughes cover, and then I'm jarred back out of my, you know, enjoyment with the art and penciling by Linda Medley. Now, this is not to take away. They are very good pencils, but I'm not used to it. I mean, I, I spent so long in the run and coming back to it after just being away, you know, 39 episodes. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> subtle. Very subtle. Sorry. Sorry. That came out again. I did not mean it that way. Um, but yeah, just coming back, I actually went back and reread 46 just so I could get the, the whole uh, context of the, the glory bound story. And I realized, oh, yes, Linda Medley had done, had, is doing the, all of it, I presume. So I went back and it, it, it softened it. So, uh, and I think you may even mention this later in the, in the issue that she does the, the first couple of pages, those panels are just like, it is jarring. It is so different than everything that we're used to from the, from the McGuire era all the way up to the present. And then by the end of the issue, it's almost like, Oh, okay. There, she's, she's getting into it. You know, she's really relaxed and she's doing these very sweeping pictures and, uh, lots of cityscapes and storylines, but even the individual characters are, are softening up. So that was very jarring for me right up front. So I, I one thing I'll add on that is that last issue was inked by Jose Marzan and this issue is inked by John Beatty and they're very different tiles styles of inkers. I mean, Beatty's a great inker. He really is. He's fantastic. But from looking at issue 46 to issue 47, I really felt like Jose Marzan's inking on Linda Medley's particular style of art added a little more polish because she does a very cartoony style. It's intentional the way she does that. And I felt like the inking last issue really brought that out. Whereas I feel like this issue, uh, there's, there's great moments and then there's not great moments. And it's interesting though, how you described it. Cause I actually, I kind of felt the opposite. I felt like the art's a little stronger in the beginning and I felt like the closer you got to the end, it got a little looser. Now maybe that was her becoming more relaxed. I'm not sure, but I, I feel like the really strong facial expressions and stuff are in the beginning. Like, uh, like on page three, there's some great expressions with Blue Beetle where he's just the, the wahaha you called out. I mean, he right. looks great. That reminds me of a, like a Ty Templeton kind of style that looks like great. And, you know, Ice's face looks great. And there's some side characters that look great. So the strong cartoony faces show up there. It's later on that uh, they get just kind of, I don't know, sort of uninspired, not bad, but just sort of uninspiring or generic. Like, you know, Maxwell Lord or Oberon or Scott Free, they don't, they don't look great. Well, and, and, I think, and I'm going to mention this part here with the whole Washington Square Park, I think that plays into it because what is so strange for me is that's almost like the B story, and they put that up front on this one. So I didn't know where they were going with it, but as you mentioned those facial expressions, I kind of got the impression that, well, maybe she's aping some of the artists that have come before her, like Kevin McGuire, who was so focused on facial expressions and, and generating such information to the reader mm-hmm. from those facial expressions. But this one, you know, all of the rest of the, the stuff, the cityscape and the people, those are all quite functional. But yes. it's just the it's the individual expressions on those that I, it took me out of it. And it's like, they've, no, that doesn't look like Beetle. That doesn't look like Ice. I, I don't know. Mm. It, it, just, it was just something about it. But I think it was all tied into, it was like, where are they going with this whole storyline with Mr. Miracle and the stunt? And I, I, it just, it took me out of it. Because right where we left off, it was we're in the thick of the the glory bound story, and all they did was casually mention, "Oh yeah, Mister Scott's over off and doing a stunt in Washington Square Park." And now we see it, and I was just like, "Well, is it is it really germane to the story for me?" I don't know. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. I mean, they spend six issue, uh, six pages on the the Shiloh Norman part of that, and now I haven't read ahead. I'm, I'm trying. I'm really trying to read this one issue at a time because I haven't read those other ones in thirty years. So maybe Shiloh becomes important in the Jonah Glory story, but it, but if he doesn't, then you're right. It does feel like sort of sort of padding. So I guess we'll have to see how that plays out over the next couple of issues. Hmm. Hadn't thought about it. Good point. Good point. Thanks. 
I love the uh, Schmidt comedy that we saw <laughs> quite a lot. You know, yes. when he showed up at the at the old folks' home, and and here where we see him in his secret underground, well, bottom floor lair, whatever. But from both of these issues, it's very reminiscent of the way over the top Artie Johnson German character. You know, very interesting yes. from, from laughing, mm-hmm. and of course that was in my head the whole time I was reading. You know, oh, I will get that general glory this time. I'm, you know, so that that just sold that character for me. I was like, oh, they're, look, they're both old and they're still doing the whole, uh, you know, Sam the Sheepdog and Wiley Coyote. They're still after each other after all these years. But one of them, he's trying to get the drop on the other one. So it, it works fantastic. And it has that whole slapstick feel of just classic slapstick is, is what they feel like they're going with it. And I hadn't thought about the Wiley Coyote and, and Roadrunner kind of thing. But there's definitely an analogy there, too. Good point. Uh, and it, because I'm a huge fan of Seinfeld, I've got a Seinfeld spotting in here. And Uh-oh, if really? You, yeah, honestly, on page 13, we have a yada, yada, yada right there when they're all, when Guy and Shiloh are, are screaming at John over his shoulder and they're just like all that raucous, inf- you know, chaos going on while they're all just trying to get his, his attention. This is, well, like you said, cover date of February 1991. That's six and a half years before the classic the yada 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 Seinfeld episode oh. April of 1997 so it I mean I didn't pick up on it at the time of course why would you but I, you know we know that that is a frequent expression I guess if you're from New York but uh, yada 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 it, it just means everything to everybody and when I saw it here it was amazing that was great well we know Jerry's a fan of comics he loves Superman maybe he read That's it here true. Maybe. That's right. Maybe. Uh, Speaking of Seinfeld, the whole time I'm hearing, like, R.G. Johnson doing the Schmidt voice, I'm hearing General Glory's voice as the one and only John O'Hurley, who is Jay Peterman from (laughs) Seinfeld. Uh, So I'm I'm picturing this when he is in his true General Glory 1940s form. It's this mid-Atlantic staccato 40s-style skipper. How are you, little camper? You know, and every time... (laughs) Yeah, it's just it's like when he's when he's even talking to to Orion there. He's, I presume that is Orion this time. Uh, nope, that's saying, Light Ray. Oh well, wait, that is Light Ray. What page are we talking? Uh, on page thirteen. Problems at home, son. Yes, that is Orion. Okay, Oof, that is Orion. It. Yeah. Yes. So when he's when he's even saying to Orion, you know, I hear problems at home, son. Maybe I can help. You know, doing that wonderful <laughs> Jay Peterman. I was just saying, I imagined the voice of the original Tick is how I hear it. Uh, I oh can't yeah. Well, uh, uh, yes, that's Patrick Warburton, also from Seinfeld. Yeah, David Putty. So it all ties back to you know, for Michael Bailey, everything ties back to Superman. For me, it all ties back to Seinfeld. But yeah. Yes, uh, I think if we ever saw a an animated version of General Glory, I would have John O'Hurley do his Jay Peterman. I think it would be perfect. And uh, even even when he does his little explanation of where he used the the Skipper term and he's why he's referring to Skipper uh, to John as Skipper, you know, giving that to FDR, it was it was just fantastic. So I hear that in my head. I can't I can't deny it. The, the Skipper bit is wonderful. Like it, I love how John fights it at first, but then he just stops fighting it. 
You know, he just he just accepts that he's going to be called Skipper, and that is there's something magical about that. And it, I I don't know why it just it's so charming. Like I kind of expected going into this again, not having reread it, that and knowing the reputation for this General Glory storyline, I was expecting General Glory to be irritating, like annoying as the reader. Not at all. I mean, he really is like sort of uplifting. Like it makes me yeah. want to think positive thoughts. He isn't irritating at all. And and each time he would call out Guy for for oh the my language Guy, you know, he's like. Oh, <laughs> So, sorry, sorry, sir. You know, he, just, right? he takes him down a peg. It's great. That was so fun and so shocking because, you know, obviously, you know, we all know where that's going and everything. But for the reader, they're like, you know, that's the first time guys ever, ever shown respect to anyone. And it's just so fun to see him so humble and so like, you know, like a little kid. Sorry, dad kind of thing. It's, yeah, it's fantastic. Exactly. exactly. Uh, and, you know, and. I think uh, some other little notes here I have is, uh, you know, we had the the obligatory Bayonne, New Jersey joke where, you know, hey, it could burn down half the city. And, of course, you know, Beatles like, well, wait a minute. Let's see. Let's think this through. You know, it's like, <laughs> Beatle, you can't let it burn down Bayonne, New Jersey. Uh, I love that the folks across the river are just such fodder for jokes in uh, in New York City. And, of course, the 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 trash can lid is a shield. Man. That was amazing. We're going to talk. We're going to talk a lot about general glory here uh, and what he represents but when i saw that and it's just such a throwaway panel he just grabs it i was like oh this is awesome and uh and finally das uberbot what a great <laughs> foreshadow for what's to come because i you know even if you didn't know well, here we are 30 years removed but uh, if you didn't know you, you just see his facial expression he's like it's oh no it's an uberbot what's <laughs> you know it's like chekhov's uberbot you know you're right. going to see that again <laughs> so all right since we're talking about the we'll hold on the nazi stuff for a second because i mean it's really played for laughs which is I feel kind of bad laughing at all the Nazi stuff because, I mean, it's it, it's the freaking Nazis. But it's done so cleverly and so funny and taken with so tongue-in-cheek, it's hard to take it seriously. But as far as General Glory goes, so where do you fall in the camp with Captain America? Do you feel it's a pastiche? Do you feel it's an homage? Do you feel like they're just, I don't know, taking the mickey out of it? Like, what? How, where do you fall on this scale? That is a great question. And now having kind of seen and, and listening to some interviews with uh, Giffen and Demetrius, uh, I think it, if you look at the timing of this, that uh, March of 1941 was the the original publication of Captain America. So we know that they were gearing up, Marvel was gearing up for the 50th anniversary of Captain America. And we are cover date here removed by one month of the 50th anniversary of Captain America. So in my heart, I think fellow comic creators are doing an homage. And I think it just worked in because the timing of it is too, is too precise to be coincidental, especially for a five part, four or five part story. So I think it was uh, not taking, uh, as, as our British friends, taking a piss out of. Uh, <laughs> it's it's actually a very strong homage because if you think about it, let's let's look at 1990. That wasn't a great year for Captain America. Now I I don't know the Marvel subscription statistics at the time, but remember how we are all like, ah, Superman's just so boring. I have to imagine at that time, Captain America in the American zeitgeist was kind of like, eh, because we had the pretty crappy movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, the 
came out in August, right? It was like direct to video, as I recall, because it was it was pretty terrible. You're making some enemies, I'm sure, right now. I, I know, I know. <laughs> but I think that this was an attempt to to heighten that character or to at least provide some kind of honorary homage to it. I think you're right. Now I hadn't thought about the fiftieth anniversary. That's a great observation to tie into it. But I do know that DiMatteis is a huge fan of Captain America. He wrote Captain America for Marvel for a while and has a tremendous amount of respect for the character. And I know, we all know Giffen, if you look at his history, has a massive love for Golden Age and Silver Age characters. So I think without a doubt, it's it's an homage to Captain America, but they knew that this book is a joke. They knew this book is funny. So they had to find a way to do it funny. And the idea to go for was to show this squeaky clean, you know, American hero in contrast to these, you know, buffoon sitcom guys. And that's, that's where it works is because, it, again, he's not irritating. He's not annoying. He's not someone you want to leave the room. He's upright and and he's stalwart and fantastic. And it just it's such a contrast to how the rest of the characters act. So I think they're right. I think it is uh, an homage. Absolutely. Yeah. And he is. I mean, even both Steve Rogers, Captain America and General Glory here, they are men out of time. But I get the impression that, you know, General Glory has just been an elderly man. He's been living his life. So mm-hmm. when he's in General Glory form, I kind of believe he has his psyche he's just he's his hearkening back to a simpler happier time to him which was the 40s and that is his mindset that he carves in the world around him you know when he's talking down to guy and things like that he's he's trying to reinstitute what he thought was a better time yeah, I think that's fair. And I think you can't dig too deep into that because, I mean, again, it's a sitcom. But, yeah, I think you're right. It's rather than sitting here and, and dissecting and going, oh, is it, you know, uh, is it like Shazam where they switch bodies or consciousness? Oh, right. It's just, yeah, he's he just seems like he's operating as he did in the 40s. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. He's just funny. Yeah, it's fun. It's it's fantastic. What about you? What you what do you think about this one? I thought it was a lot of fun. There's a lot to like in this issue. Now, you've got me questioning the whole thing with Shiloh now. Because, like, I, I just took it at face and uh, value and just enjoyed it and thought it was fun. And because I like Shiloh. I was reading the Mr. Miracle book at the time, so it was exciting to me to see him here. So I was like, oh, that's awesome. And then I thought more about, too, like, you know, with, with the whole... You know, with the bug f- hovering over the, the, the spectacle of the safe and everything in Washington Square? It's a little right. weird. If, the more I thought about it, like, they're just hovering over him, watching this right. trick go on. Like, <laughs> hovering like a helicopter, you know? And that would be a bit of, like, a distracting, wouldn't it be, to, like, his audience? Like, you know, obviously Mr. Miracle's coordinating, or Oberon, or whoever's coordinating to this crowd to come watch this event. And here's the stupid superheroes over, hovering overhead, kind of kind of upstaging it, like a kind of a dick move. <laughs> so I, I don't know, the more I thought about that. But I did really enjoy seeing Shiloh suspended in the air, hanging out for dear life. I found that hilarious. I, the, the body language that uh, Linda Medley used with the flapping arms looked very cartoony. I thought that was super fun. And there's something I didn't catch this till the second or third read. So on page six, you know, Shiloh is, you know, hanging on for dear life, right? Uh, out of Hanging out of the bug. And Light Ray comes up to save him, right? So Light Ray is shocked that it's not Scott Free. And he, he exclaims, hi, father's curls. You know, just like Superman would say, you know, Grey Row or something like that. So think about that for a second. Uh, High Father's curls. High Father has straight hair. He doesn't have any curly hair on his head. So (laughs) what's Light Ray talking about? I think I know. <laughs> yeah, don't worry. The rest of you folks, think on it for a little bit. It'll come to you eventually. So yeah, they 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 managed to squeeze that into a comic book for kids. That's amazing. <laughs> 
Uh, oh, you know, I meant to mention something right on that. You know, you talked about that splash page, right, with the Washington Square, the, with the arch, uh, which I, I think looks great, by the way. There's a weird thing with the credits. So they've got all the credits written out, you know, plotter, inker, all that stuff. But they took the time to write everyone in like a different handwriting style, which is very strange. At, at first, I thought it was actually their handwriting. Then I went back and checked, like, John Beatty has signed a lot of comics. That doesn't match a signature at all. So I, you know, I thought, I don't know, is DiMatteo supposed to look like Disney's signature? I don't know what's going on there. But it feels like it's supposed to be representative of something. So I, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm missing something. Well, you know, now that I say that, Helfer does look a little bit like the way he signs Helfer. I don't know. Maybe they got everyone to sign it. I don't know. Yeah, I could see that. I'm That's just, a little too nerdy for me, but uh, you, you go with it. <laughs> well, when you do a podcast, you do spend a lot more time digging in on stuff than you probably should. That's um, true. But look at look at the Andy Helfer. That N is backwards, like Andy. Uh, obviously, we're we're four years prior to Toy Story, but that looks exactly like Andy's scrawl on the bottom of Woody's boot. Only four years. That means Toy Story's twenty six years old or whatever. Indeed. Holy moly! Oh my gosh, that little kid's got to stop playing with toys. Other quick notes. I'll fly through these quickly. So Oberon, you know, he's he's back in this issue, but you know, he just left the team an issue or two ago, right? Very very dramatically, in fact. And now he's back, like nothing's happened. And, and Max even mentions he's got Oberon working out a project for him. So I I feel like that takes a little wind out of the sails of Oberon's dramatic departure a couple issues ago. It seems like it was just quickly overturned. Uh, you know, we talked a little about Orion and Light Ray. That, that was just exciting that Orion and Light Ray actually have something to do in the comic because they, so far, they've been kind of non-characters other than Orion being angry. I mean, that's really well, all we see. To that point, I had no memory. I'm like, I'm <laughs> like Gandalf. I have no memory of these characters whatsoever. I don't remember this period where they were just there. I, I remember they had a try out at some point, but were these guys just hangers-on? It's like, oh, all these new Genesis hangers-on. Okay, whatever. At this point, that is pretty much all they're doing, is just hanging around. We don't get much characterization or, or much of anything out of these characters. Now, maybe that's going to change. We'll find out my reread here, but so far, not really much of anything. Although, on, on page seven, there's a moment where Orion's talking to General Glory, and he's just got this real scowl on his face, and it looks very cartoony, and at first I was like, ugh, I don't really like this art, but the more I look at that particular face, like, I kind of love it. It's so ridiculous ridiculously cartoony. I'm in love with it, actually. <laughs> oh, yeah. It is It is a screwed-up, puckered-up face, man. It yeah. is, without a doubt. Yeah, but it conveys everything that you need to know. Elrond looks fantastic. They did a great job on him. Uh, page 15, where the bug is flying into Bayoun, New Jersey. A full splash page of it. Really nicely done. Uh, the bug looks great in shadow. Lots and lots of use of shadow of the building where it's on fire. I thought that was a really striking splash page. It really did kind of go, oh, wow. Yeah, it's almost like the the rear, you know, part of the the carapace of the of the bug is like catching a street lamp. You know, it's just getting a little bit of light where the rest is in shadow. That's really impressive. Yeah, they're really nice. So I mean, we've we've had some critical things to say about the art, but there's also some stuff to love. So it's it's kind of a mixed bag, really, is where I fall on this one. Uh, now she does. Here's something else she does that I absolutely love: Blue Beetle. Every time she draws Blue Beetle, you can see through his goggles, just like you know you normally can. But under the goggles, you can't see the pupil. All you see is the almond shape of a blank eye. And I just find that so striking on Blue Beetle. Now, that's something that uh, Ty Templeton used to do as well, so maybe she got that from him. You mentioned being inspired by a previous artist. It could 
maybe that's where she got it. But I love that look for him where you can't see the people. I think it really makes a, I don't know, there's something about it that looks really striking. Just a couple pages before that panel is when Max is coming back, like, oh, you know, everything's fine. And he hears all the, the cacophony in the other room. And he's got his shoes in his hand. Yes. He is trying to sneak past them up the stairs. And then that great line uh, of nice try, Max, but you can't sneak past a telepath. And then he just, <laughs> you have the, the thought bubble of rats, which is my favorite Charlie Brown uh, expression. <laughs> and it's just so perfect just rats i uh, see this is one of those moments where the comedy is gold but where i felt like the art let it down because like yeah, Ma- yeah max is a character i don't feel like medley and bd had a, a grip on here so it's like the bit is hilarious the shoes are hysterical but it just i have a hard time enjoying it because of that i uh it's also a coloring error where max's hair starts off brown and then turns black after a couple panels so i took this great moment you're celebrating and i and i, I and i pooped all over it sorry about that hey i'm i'm used to it it's cool thanks man <laughs> 30 years so uh two other things i want to mention orion so he uses the boom tube to directly to the east river and it just the east river floods right through to put out the fire that is super clever like i don't think i've ever seen anyone use a boom tube that cleverly in i don't know 40 years of reading comic books so wow that i don't know that blew my mind when the more i thought about it, like that is super smart you know what uh, What drives me crazy about all that? What's that? Is uh, Bayonne, New Jersey. Your readers or your listeners are going to probably know where Bayonne, New Jersey is. I don't. And Oh, okay. Well, it, it just, the whole East River thing. It's It would probably be more likely the Hudson River, I'm guessing, or, you know, depending on what they consider the, the, the bay down there at that point. It is south of the Statue of Liberty, so would it really be the East River? That's my geography quibble of the day, so take that and run with it. All right, geography nerd. I will point out that boom tubes can literally open a portal from here to another dimension, so a okay. different river wouldn't be that hard. Now, the real question sure, is, sure, sure. How, how would Martian Manhunter know it was the East River, unless he read Orion's mind, I suppose. Uh, I'm no-prizing this thing all over the place, I guess. But, yeah, <laughs> he, he could have boom-tubed from the Indian Ocean. I mean, literally, he could have took it from true. anywhere. Yeah, That's true. But either way, it's a really clever idea that I don't remember anyone ever using a boom-tube for anything other than just transportation, really. So I feel like this was really clever. And, and finally, just got to mention the dog. He's really cute. He's this cute little bulldog, and there's a funny moment where he's, like, peeing on the sofa and stuff. And at first, I was like, really? Do we need a pet? And then I realized, oh, you know what? Just like Europe has a cat, just like America needs a dog. Perfect. Nice synergy there. So, Pat, I got to ask, as I'm going to ask everyone who's helping me with these General Glory issues. So, you know, there's a reputation here. The General Glory story arc does not have a very well-regarded reputation amongst the fans. So how did this issue hold up for you? I thought it was serviceable. I did not enjoy it as much as the first chapter, but it kept me uh, engaged enough to see where they're going with it. So I, I'm looking forward to the next issue. Even though I won't be recording it with you, I will hand off that to somebody else, but I will still be taking part in that by rereading it as well. So, awesome. Yes, I thought it was, I would give it, if I'm, if I'm giving it a five stars, I would give it about a three star. Okay. Good, not great, but it continued the humor that I learned and appreciated all these years. 
I think that's fair. You know, I, I enjoyed the story probably more than I enjoyed the art. Uh, you know, I enjoyed the art last issue quite a bit. This issue, eh, not quite as much, but the story was fun and engaging, and I found myself pleasantly enjoying the uh, General Glory character a lot more than I expected. So I put it in the win column, but like you, probably a little middling. So that's fair. That's fair. If, if I have one other disappointment was I was hoping to see the words again in this one. You know, Duh. Lady Liberty, hear my plea from the home of the brave and the land of the free. Those words. <laughs> uh, he's already General Glory, so they didn't need to do it again. That's true. I don't know if that turns him normal uh, if he does it again. I don't really know yet. I, somehow he's got to turn back to an old man, right? That's right. So uh, the only thing worth mentioning then, too, is on the letters page, they did uh, put an in-house ad. It is a little shot of Crimson Fox taken directly from the cover of Justice League Europe number 23. And it says, who is the Crimson Fox? Find out in issues number 23 through 25 of Justice League Europe on sale soon. So it's a nice little ad, nice little shout out. And you'll hear all about that in just a few minutes with my next guest. All right, Pat, this is the part of the show where we get to nominate the... Wahaha Award. This is where we each are going to pick what we feel is the funniest moment in the issue, and only one will be awarded the coveted Bwahaha Award. Patrick, you're up first. What do you got? Well, as always, we struggle with this prize. I know both of us do. Yes. I came down to two, and I'm gonna. I, and it was just by the slightest hair that I had to to tie break that tie. I'm gonna give an honorable mention first. Uh, the the first one is when Guy is attacking Orion with. Uh, you killed my hero. Mm-hmm. That is that made me chuckle. But the one that made me laugh out loud, uh, I think, deserves the Bwahaha Award for this one is when uh, when Guy is putting out the fire with his ring generated fire extinguisher and. Uh, they're joking around, and John says, you know, lives are at stake here. And you hear from off-panel, which is great, because it's from that general direction, sure thing, Skipper, and be sure to give my best to Gilligan. <laughs> to me, classic television humor will always win the Bwahaha Award for me. So that takes it. And, and, and it's also very representative of Guy, because that's the level of his, you know, sort of maturity is Gilligan's Island. So that fits very exactly. well. Exactly. I struggled, man. I really struggled with this issue. And and mine isn't even really a like I can't even narrow it down. Like I, I basically it, it was the idea of General Glory calling Martian Manhunter Skipper is what I enjoyed and thought was the funniest in this thing. But I can't even cite a specific example. Like, you know, the closest is on page eight when he's explaining why he's calling him Skipper, but I couldn't even cite uh, one panel where it works so great. So I feel like I, I'm going to have to turn it over to you. Even and, and, I mean, you got a Skipper reference in there. So, it, you know, it's kind of like a, it's, there's some synergy there. So I think we're going to go ahead and give it to Skipper and Gilligan and Marianne and the professor too, I think is who we're going to give this one to. Is that fair? And those, that's fair. And she's probably going to make a nice coconut cream pie for us. <laughs> <laughs> so congratulations to Guy Gardner and the whole cast of Gilligan's Island for winning the Bwahaha Award. Please uh, wear it with pride is as tangible as the laughter we give you. Now, Pat, I need to ask a favor. Uh, would you mind hanging out here at the New York Embassy for just a little bit and keeping an eye on General Glory's new dog? I'm, I'm pretty confident, based on that last panel, he's not housebroken. Sure, sure thing. Hey, hey, get away. Hey, get away from those Oreos. Shoot, shoot. <sighs> dogs. Yeah, I don't think chocolate's good for dogs. You might want to watch out for that. So, uh, but Pat, don't worry. We will bring you back at the end of the show. And after this podcast promo break, I'm going to head over to the London Embassy for the 23rd issue of Justice League Europe. 
Ah, it's so good to be on a break from my hectic, hectic work schedule. To be free of, well, okay, I like to hit my clients, but it's so nice to just get out of the office and stretch my legs and go for a walk around the city. What a beautiful day. Ah, it's lovely. Oh, excuse me, mate. Have you, have you got any uh, DC events? Have you got any, have you got any invasion? Uh, have you got any uh, uh, Genesis? Uh, I'm, just... I'm very so sorry. I know I... Wait, Paul? Oh. Paul, is that you? Oh, oh, Dr. Herfen thing. Oh, hello. My gosh, Paul, what has happened to you? Why are you in this gutter here? Oh, I may have had a bit of a relapse and got back on the DC events a bit too hard. Ah, oh, multiple expletives in whatever European country I come from. Good Lord, ah, oh, this means one thing. We have to get you back. Back in the office for more... DC OCD. Oh, excellent. Yes, DC OCD is back, looking at every single DC event from where we dropped off last time. Uh, I don't know where that was, but we're continuing, moving on into the recent years of DC events. So uh, look for it on the Waiting for Doom feed, wherever you see good podcasts and ours. Just when I thought I was out, he drags me back in. <laughs> hoo And now, our coverage of Justice League Europe, number And I'm here with our second co-host for this episode. Now, folks, this gentleman is an accomplished cartoonist and the past chair for the Florida chapter of the National Cartoonist Society. He's currently an editorial cartoonist for our local newspaper, the Tallahassee Democrat, which is part of the USA Today Network. Now, he and I met at a free comic book day like a zillion years ago. Uh, he was promoting the small press comic he'd been working on. And then a few years later, we bumped into each other again, and he made the mistake of telling me that he listens to our Who's Who podcast, <laughs> The Fool, uh, because from there, I sucked him into my life of depravity and role-playing games. Folks, please help me welcome to the show Mr. Nathan Archer. Welcome to the London Embassy, Nathan. Thanks for being here, man. How you doing? Hey, Shag! I am so glad to be here. S- standing here in the amazing JLE Embassy, it's it's a lot smaller than I thought, but pretty nice. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's the London Embassy. It's kind of the reverse TARDIS, so rather than being bigger on the inside, it's actually smaller on the inside. So terribly sorry about that, sir. It, it fits like a wet sock. It's great. Oh, God. <laughs> What a disgusting image. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) So, Nathan, I am so excited to have you on the show. We have been buddies for many, many, many years. We've been talking about having you on the show. I mean, we just had Patrick, you know, in the first half of the show. You and me and Patrick are all actual friends in real life, which is crazy. So this is super cool. Thank you so much for being here. You're very welcome. I'm I'm really excited for your listeners because they get to listen to me now instead of Patrick. So I know they had to suffer through that, but, um, you know, they're on to the good stuff now. It is a huge step up. Let's face it. I mean, it really, really is. (laughs) 
Now, Nathan, I got to ask you, as I ask everyone on their first time on the show, what is your personal origin story with the JLI? How'd you discover the book? What made you fall? Shut up. I'm talking. Uh, How'd you discover the book? And what made you fall in love with it? So my first experience with this area of the Justice League was with Justice League Quarterly Number 1, everybody's favorite issue, I'm sure. I adore it. Thank you very much. (laughs) You know, it wasn't that bad. But, you know, I missed the boat with Justice League Number 1, and I thought JLQ would be a great place to jump on board. Well, I did enjoy that issue, but aside from a lot of Booster Gold, it wasn't quite enough Justice League for a Justice League book for me. Come on, man. Uh, conglomerate represent, brother. I know. It, it did have Maxi Man on the team, you know, which is everything, but uh, yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> I dived into those early Justice League uh, and Justice League America issues later, but when I saw this issue in particular of JLE on the stands a few months after trying JLQ, I was just blown away by the Bart Sears cover artwork and I just had to learn more. So over the next couple of years, I dipped my toe into the series as well as the other main JL book. But So let me see if I understand this right. So you're saying this issue, Justice League Europe number 23, was your first issue as a regular collector of the, 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 the main league books? It absolutely was, if you can believe it. Wow. Okay, so that's interesting. So I'm going to want to know, I'm going to make you think back here, you know, not just looking, yeah. looking at this modern day, but think back, like, what was your impression of the team? Because this is not a massive, super heroic, you know, fight the bad guy, save the universe kind of issue. Like, what did you, sure. do you remember what you thought when you read this? Uh, I thought it was definitely more of the soap opera kind of, you know, story. It was more about how the characters interacted with one another as opposed to some big threat. But honestly, the cover, you know, who is the Crimson Fox? That's why I bought the issue. So it answered that. So I was a pretty happy reader. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, let's get let's get into it because, I mean, we got a lot to talk about. There's a lot there to unpack sure here. So, all right. We are talking about Justice League Europe number 23 from DC Comics, cover dated February 1991. On the shelves, January 8th, 1991. Kick in the new year with this book, folks. Cover price is $1 for Shining Quarters. And the cover is by Bart Sears and Randy Elliott. You want to describe the cover for us? Oh, my gosh. I would absolutely love to. So I am insanely excited to talk about this cover. This cover is <laughs> everything to me. So first of all, let's talk about Bart Sears. All right. Right on. So I fell in love with Bart's work on Invasion. And then a little later on in Wizard Magazine, in his Brutes and Babes drawing feature. Do you remember that? Oh, heck yeah. Absolutely. I know. Who doesn't remember good old Brutes and Babes? So, you know, nowadays my style looks nothing like Bart's. But I remember at the time trying to capture his style, you know, and draw those clean lines. And and that over the top anatomy, you know, when I was a kid, but uh, never never quite mastered it. Well, sir, yeah, okay. so there, hold, hold on a minute. That sounds like you're downplaying your own style. You are an amazing cartoonist, oh. sir. I mean, well, thank you very much. Thank you. But my style totally different from Bart Sears, and that's okay. Yeah, I'm just okay a bit, but yeah, <laughs> just a little bit, just a little bit. Don't yeah. let Nathan undersell this, folks. I mean, seriously, he is the editorial cartoonist of our newspaper. He is an amazing <laughs> artist. He's great. It is, it is cartoony. Versus what Bart Sears is doing. But, dude, you, you're fantastic, and I want to be sure people understand that. Thank you so much, Shaq. I am writing your check right now. How much did we agree upon for Oh, that? actually, what? I just wrote him one, folks, because I actually commissioned him <laughs> to do something for my mom on Mother's Day. That's how good this guy is. <laughs> well, thank you. All right, let me pick myself back up from the floor and uh, gather myself here. Uh, <laughs> 
Why didn't you describe the cover? What's taking you so long? Oh, my gosh. All right. All right. The cover. That's what we're talking about here, right? All right. So the real reason I absolutely love this cover is because of its cover within a cover motif here. All right. So, you know, basically, Bart has drawn the cover of a magazine called Hero Style, which features Crimson Fox on the cover um, with all the standard trade dress that you would see on any kind of like fashion magazine from the time. And then that magazine sitting on top of a regular office style desk with a cup of coffee and a pen and some post-it notes off to the side. But I absolutely loved that that cover within a cover kind of trick that he used. That totally drew me in. And um, in my nine to five life right now, I'm a graphic designer. So mm. while I probably didn't even know what that was back in 91, I was just magnetically drawn to the layout of this cover back then. It's a brilliant composition. It really is. I mean, you mentioned the post-it notes. It really notes, is. But there's, yeah, there's telephone, there's the coffee, the pens, every bit of it is just super clever. And I didn't even notice, but there's a blotter underneath them too. Like people used to use on their desk, the blotters. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like a one-to-one ratio. I mean, it looks almost actual size. Like if mm-hmm. this is sitting on your desk, like boom, it's almost like trompe l'oeil, full the eye. It's 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 right there. It's great. I love the, uh, the, the UPC box on the Hero Style magazine is the actual UPC box for the comic. So like the, oh. version, the version I'm looking at is the direct market. So it's got the JLI logo in there. Yes, but, but same I, here. I looked it up. The mass market version had the genuine UPC logo, uh, you know, askew as to make it look like it was from the Hero Style magazine. That is so brilliant. That is great. That is great. Yes, absolutely. They used it to their favor um, 100%. Yeah, I mean, I remember at the time DC was doing all kinds of like fake publications like this Hero Style. They were doing the Invasion Daily Planet Edition, mm-hmm. and they did the Death of Superman Newstime magazine <sighs> a couple years later. Love Those that. were great things, and I was all about about that stuff. All about it. Right so. there with you, man. I absolutely love both of those publications. I've still got them, too. Yes. Yes. Mm. So, yeah. I mean, I thought this cover, not just the Justice League Europe cover, but the Hero Style cover, I thought it just held up really well to the graphic design standards of the day. You know, just, it, this thing just looked like a real magazine cover. The typography on the trade dress, the Who is the Crimson Fox, um, looks great. I love those four bits about all the characters. Like, is there life on Mars? 20 questions with Matt Marshall and Hunter. (laughs) And I love that they're they're referencing JLA, JLE characters, except for Man of Steel, except for Superman, but you got to throw him a bone, right? Right. Well, General Glory and Mr. Nebula, that just warmed my heart. I got to say, Mr. (laughs) Nebula, 10 U.S. cities that have just got to go. (laughs) Cracks me up. It's the best. It's the best. But yeah, what else about this cover? So I, I felt like the colors were a little weird for your standard comic book cover of 1991. I mean, they're all like browns and olive greens and grays. But for some reason, I just love it. I love it. Well, I think what you're dealing with is they've got to make her the central figure, right? Everything's got to be around her. So she's just kind of that orangey tan color and brown. So what complements that? Well, the purples and the oranges and the, and the olive green really work well with it. So I think that's why they ended up with those sort of unusual colors because it had to complement her. Like, if you look at the Justice League logo, it's all red. It doesn't work. Yep. You know, it, it it's jarring, that red. But the purple and the green and the, and the tan all work really, really well. So I think that's what drove the color choices. Yep, absolutely. It kind of tones it all down while still, like, making her the central image of the piece. It's yeah. great. Yeah. 
And she looks great. She looks sexy. She's got her. She, hand. she looks amazing. Yeah. She's got her That's hand good. on her hip there, or, or her leg, you know, in that sort of claw pattern sort of thing. Yeah. Nobody's been able to draw Crimson Fox like Bart Sears ever. I mean, he's the only artist for her, really. And I think that's what's actually held back the character. Because she's an interesting character, but because nobody, as you said, besides Bar Sears, has really been able to depict her, I, I think that's actually worked against her, unfortunately. It's sort of like some yeah. of George Perez's costumes. that he When he designs an overly complex costume that only he can draw, <laughs> you know, the, the character suffers with the next artist. You're absolutely right, sir. Absolutely right. Yeah, I, I was even rereading some Green Lantern issues from uh, the mid-2000s, the um, Jeff Johns, Ivan Reese mm-hmm. uh, run, because they had Crimson Fox in, and even Ivan couldn't capture Crimson Fox as good as Bart Sears. So, oh, wow, that's know. bizarre. Okay, I know, and he's one of my favorite contemporary artists. So, so uh, you know, if you think about Crimson Fox, you know, she's actually made it into live-action television. On, she has. Uh, in the show uh, Powerless, <laughs> which, by the way, I, I at first was very critical of Powerless, and then I sat down and really watched it. It's a great show, by the way. It oh, absolutely. Super yes. fun. But at least in there, they made her red. You know, and like here, yeah. it's like, there's not a stitch of red on Crimson Fox. <laughs> No, she is clearly brown. Her costume is brown from head to toe. There's nothing crimson about her. But yeah, you're absolutely right. She looks so much better in this costume than she does when she's dressed head to toe in crimson. It yeah. just, I don't know, something about it. It just works. It does. So let, let's talk a little more about specifically her costume. You got it. All right. So I'd never really been exposed to this character before, but her image just screamed out at me to find out more, you know? I thought her costume was just absolutely super. Super cool. It doesn't make her look like a fox one bit. In fact, <laughs> you know, I think if I just saw her without her name right next to her, I might think this is like a lady copperhead or something yes, like that. Yes, a snake the is what she looks like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She totally has that cobra kind of look to her. But I do appreciate the fact that they're kind of going for this like starfire hair trail kind of visual. Mm-hmm. You know, just something that the artist can play around with and you can really do some exciting stuff with visually. I get what they're going for. Totally. Comparing it, uh, her hood to Starfire or, or is absolutely correct. In, in fact, you could compare it to Batman's cape. I mean, as you said, it gives the artist something to draw to demonstrate motion. And yes. it's also, it's a really clever adaptation for the superhero costume that I don't think we've seen before in a cowl. Because, you know, again, Batman's cape, Starfire's hair, stuff like that. I've never seen a cowl be the item that shows motion. I, I had a conversation with Al Milgram one time, who the co-creator of Firestorm. And he told me mm-hmm. that the whole reason they gave Firestorm puffy sleeves well, not the whole reason, but one of the reasons they gave Firestorm puffy sleeves is so when he flew, they could show motion by showing the, the sleeves flapping ah. like a cape. It's again, it's another clever way to use the costume to show motion without giving him a cape. And that is absolutely what the what the hood does here. So I can't think of another yeah. hero that uses their hood to demonstrate. Now, you see hair, like Starfire's hair, Firestorm's hair, but I've never, I can't think of any other hoods that demonstrate the motion by the character. Absolutely. I also took a, um, a character design workshop with um, the great animator Tom Bancroft um, a couple years ago at Dragon Con. And one of the lessons that he taught me was that you always want your characters to have a great silhouette, you know? So even if they're painted all black, you can tell exactly who they are Mm. um, out of a lineup. And I mean, this is such a great example of that. That silhouette is so strong, not just with the hood, but with those claws too. Yep, the claws, the tail, the the curves. uh, all of The curves, the curves, absolutely. (laughs) It is Bart Sears drawing her, let's be honest. (laughs) 
All right, well, let's get on the inside. So, folks, the plot and potentially breakdowns by Keith Giffen. Script is by Gerard Jones. Penciler is Bart Sears. Inker is Randy Elliott. Letter is Bob LaPan. Colorist is Gene D'Angelo. Assistant editor is Kevin Dooley. And editor is Andy Helfer. All right, Nathan, you want to start us off with a story called Foxy Ladies. You got it. All right, so our story starts off in the London Embassy of the Justice League Europe. Kilowog is moving some heavy new power equipment in, getting in everyone's way, and getting on the Flash's nerves. While Catherine, Captain Adam, and the Flash banter about Kilowog's technical prowess, Metamorpho's episode of the Three Stooges is interrupted when Power Girl and Crimson Fox burst in the room. Power Girl is very upset that she's being asked to register herself with Camus, the head of Interpol's Metahuman Cooperative Unit. Power Girl sees it as unconstitutional. Has anyone told her that she lives in Europe? But Crimson Fox <laughs> but Crimson Fox doesn't think it's a big deal. Wally takes Power Girl's side in the debate, even if he makes a lewd comment while doing so. But, you know, that's typical for Wally of this era. Before taking leave of the embassy, Crimson Fox flirts pretty hard with Captain Adam, which makes him visually uncomfortable and Wally pretty jealous. So then we follow the Crimson Fox as she makes her way to the Revson Cosmetics building. Her sister Constance Daramus is there talking with a male subordinate and taking a look at a Hero Style magazine that's featured on the cover of the issue. She's bemoaning to herself how hard it is to run a multinational corporation while being a member of the Justice League when Crimson Fox walks in. They banter back and forth about their responsibilities, being Crimson Fox, as well as running a company. Constance seems to feel that she's the more responsible sister and gets upset that Vivian is so flirtatious with Captain Adam. Constance then announces that she's heading to an English club called the Society of St. Chumley and leaves Vivian alone in their shared office. The scene then cuts over to a castle on top of a gigantic hill, which one can surmise is the society's headquarters. A man named Jason Justin has been invited to join the society's council and is being led through the crowd to the inner circle of the club. He's taken through a secret passage and descends a stone staircase while his escorts chant phrases in Latin. Justin is told that he needs the approval of the master tuner before he's officially allowed to join. Once he gains an audience with the master tuner, it becomes obvious that Jason wants to join their ranks to get back at Simon Stagg, who conducted a hostile takeover of Jason's company. The Master Tuner seems to be pleased with this motivation. All right, well, I'll take it from here. Uh, Then the members of the Society of St. Chumley gather, and the basement ceiling opens to the sky, creating a sort of courtyard. There, the Master Tuner seems to use the members' hate to activate an enormous tuning fork. They perform some sort of summoning, and did it work? We don't really know, because as the reader, we don't see any sort of result of the ceremony, so we don't know. Then we cut back to the Revson building, and Vivian is reading the proof of the Hero Style magazine article about Crimson Fox. Now, Vivian is dismayed at how badly it's written, which leads her to recall her true origin. So we get a flashback with gorgeous cloud corners. So the story begins many years ago at a multinational perfume company called Pouauter, and I know, I know I've said that wrong, so I don't want to hear about a few French speakers. Uh, so it's a perfume company, and by the way, uh, Pouauter translates literally to stench or stink, uh, which is hilarious. So anyway, as the reader, we're introduced to a lovely young female chemist who is clearly Vivian and Constance's mother, and as well as Andre, who's the department chief for the research and development department. Now, Andre has developed a new scent that uses pheromones. However, he's advised the company's owner, Mr. Puanter, again, I can't say that, so from now on, we're just going to call him Old Man Stank, all right? Anyway, uh, Andre has tried to convince Old Man Stank that it's too dangerous to pursue this pheromones perfume. 
Old Man Stank doesn't care, so he initiates testing regardless of the danger, and Andre resigns in protest, and the Crimson Fox mother participates in the product testing. Sadly, she's unaware that she's pregnant with twins. Shortly after the twins' birth, the mother dies of cancer caused by the experimental pheromone perfume. Now, Andre adopts the twins and raises them to adulthood, eventually telling them everything. So the women initiate a hostile takeover of Pu-en-Terre perfume. In Old Man Stank is really upset about this, and he murders Andre in revenge, and then he goes on the run and vanishes. Now, Vivian and Constance rebrand Pu-en-Terre uh, as Revsum, uh, either because the name sucked or just so I don't have to say that word anymore. Anyway, and they built an empire on cosmetics and publishing. So Vivian and Constance dedicate their lives to hunting down Old Man Stank, uh, and they're inspired by Batman. They create the whole Crimson Fox identity. They even stage the death of Constance to help establish their secret identity. The world thinks Vivian D. Aramis is the surviving twin, but secretly the women take turns swapping being, uh, between posing as Vivian and the Crimson Fox. Now, back at the Society of St. Chumley, the reader discovers that the Master Tuner is secretly Old Man Stank, the man responsible for the death of both of Crimson Fox's parents. Now, and he's also watching Constance at the Society event in a pretty creepy way. Meanwhile, the Justice League Europe team investigates a missing industrial plant owned by Simon Stagg. The entire building and all the surrounding structures are just simply gone, as if they've been wiped away. While Stagg is berating Captain Adam, demanding the League do something about the missing building, unexpectedly, the ground cracks open, and this enormous like building-sized sandworm comes bursting through, smashing everything. Next issue, worm food. Oof. Now, there is a lot <laughs> in this issue, alright? So, uh, and I, knew, I realized, I think I switched between Old Man Stench and Old Man Stank like four times, so I don't care. I'm going with Old Man Stank. So, what did you think of the issue, Nathan? <laughs> well, I love this issue. I mean, I bought it simply because of the cover, Who is the Crimson Fox? And I got the answer, which rarely happens in the world of comics. <laughs> <laughs> very true, very true. You know, they try and leave a couple dangling characters, like, who really is this guy that, uh, you know, is the is behind the society of St. Chumley, but come on, we've pieced it together already. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so, you know, I guess the only real mystery is, like, where'd the worm come from? Yeah, that which was... I was happy to follow up in the next issue. That was completely out of left field. It kind of was, wasn't it? Yeah. Now, obviously, yeah. that's what they were summoning with the Master Tuner. I get that now, but... Uh, <laughs> But at the time, I'm like, what the heck is this? Right, right. Who knows what he was trying to do with that giant tuning fork the first time you read it. Yeah. Now, yeah. I got to say, and your recap really didn't hit on this, so, you know, shame on you. But, I mean, the, the big me. deal here is there is a reveal when Crimson Fox goes to visit Constance or Vivian, however you want to look at it, at Revsum, and she pulls back the hood. And for a reader, this would have been the first time they would have been like, oh, they're the same person. I mean, this is the first time that they acknowledge that Crimson Fox is two different people up till now. We just thought it was Vivian, you know, and the head of Revsum. We had no idea it was two people. So that was a major revelation right there in the issue, which is, you know, and now all these years later, we don't, we just take it for granted because we all know, well, anyone that knows anything about Crimson Fox, which admittedly is a small <laughs> amount of people, let's be honest. But either way, uh, all five of us know. Right. <laughs> But, uh, so, I mean, that was probably a pretty big revelation at the time. It was. I gotta say, though, you know, if this is your first issue of the comic like it was for me, it wasn't that shocking. Right. It's true. <laughs> it was, 
It was still a fun little gimmick for a superhero back then. I don't know if I'd ever come across the whole, you know, twins sharing the same secret identity before. So it works. It look. It, I know, uh, like in the back of my mind, I know there's other twins that share a secret identity. I know, like, like, right? Like maybe the Trigger right. Twins or something like that. But yeah, I, Tornado Twins. But that's not really the same thing, right? Because they're they're two independent characters. Yeah. yeah. But uh, but either way, there's you know, in fact, put in the comments, folks, help us remember other situations where twins have shared a single secret identity. So and I'm not talking about the parent trap folks all right also crimson fox another thing about here here is that we still don't have any mention of her fairmount powers right she we know that's coming right. I and mean, they kind of hint at it when they talk about the fact that her mom was using experimental per, you know pheromone perfumes yes. and vivian did casually mention something when she's walking across the tightrope she mentions that maybe next time she'll give captain adam a push which yes. is, uh, I assume that's what they're talking about, because you know, she was climbing all over him there. Absolutely. And even, as, again, as a casual reader, first issue, I was kind of picking up on that. I kind of felt that she had that, you know, that uh, that poison ivy kind of I can allure men yeah. uh, kind of power. Yeah. With that costume, she doesn't need the power. But anyway. <laughs> All right, sure. So yeah, let me let me talk about this issue in detail because I got a couple notes here. So you know, as we're going through page one, I forgot just how crazy Catherine's hair is. It's huge, and you know, <laughs> especially that very first panel that she's in in the lower lower right corner of page one. I mean, she looks like Elvira. Do you think this was styled off Elvira's wig? Oh my gosh, uh, it could be. It could be. Now, there's a reason for this though, because what Bart okay. Sears is up against, he's drawing you know all these beautiful women, right? Uh, which he does exceptionally. However, he's got to deal with both Sue and Catherine. Both have black hair, uh-huh. and both are in the embassy in plain clothes. They don't have superhero. Co- I mean, let's face it; they are the two smartest people on the team. But both of them, especially when they're in scenes together, <laughs> he's got to find distinguishing traits. So one is that he gives uh, Catherine crazy hair. He tends to give Catherine very, very stylish clothes, and they tend to be insanely tight. Whereas Sue, <laughs> he gives her a little more realistic clothing and puts her hair a little bit different, so to give you distinguishing. So I think. He was forced into this position to give her that hair, but it became her style. I mean, it became what you know we knew Catherine for, and also you know in the eighties and nineties, hair was pretty big. Hair, got pretty it was big. pretty big. Yeah, yeah. I definitely associate this hair with this character. You're oh, absolutely yeah. right about that. So, and I have a total comic book crush on Catherine Colbert to this day. So, I it, it's all excused for me. I have no problem with this hair. <laughs> all right, let me just uh, hope that you keep enough, you know, Aquanet in stock to um, satisfy your requirements there. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on, I can't believe that in the credits they actually credit somebody for going to get cigarettes for the creators. Oh, um, I those, found that hilarious. <laughs> those were the days. <laughs> Things were right, a little different right. back then. <laughs> they absolutely were. Uh, so I found that really funny. This I hadn't seen Kara's costume from this era in quite a, quite some time, so it was really fun to see her wearing that again. I remember at the time knowing that this wasn't her, you know, traditional original costume. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as my first real experience with the character, I kind of dug it. I like the simplicity of it. This is back around the time when those simple costumes were really in vogue, like Captain Adams. Yeah, I just think that there's a really nice kind of clean line to it. I love this version of it. And I've said it many times on the podcast. The Power Girls costume here, I absolutely love it. Now, there's no denying her classic costume that she had originally, and then they brought back her on Infinite Crisis. It's, all, it's, it's exceptional. It really is. And that is her iconic look. However, if you got to step away from that, this costume is, is great. I love the fact that it covers so much skin. I mean, she's still sexy, and yet it covers almost every inch of her body, except for her hands and her face. You know, I, I love the the poofy sort of 
mock turtleneck sort of thing. I love yep. the, the, the V going down, like from the shoulders down to the belly button. I think it looks great. Absolutely. Even her little Atlantean star there at her belly button. It's a really yeah. nice touch. Um, yeah, great costume. And, you know, yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't want to see her in this all the time, but as a fun little detour for a while, it was great. Just kind of like Black Canary in the early issues of Justice League. Yeah, that's true. And it, and frankly, this is a lot better than, other than her original costume, this is a lot better than any other costume they tried to give her. Absolutely, absolutely. I'm a huge fan of George Perez, but, oh, that new 52 costume, that just did not hit the mark for me. I, I, I don't really fault him. So, yeah, I, I, I imagine yeah, he was yeah. got a lot of direction, because I, I understand when the new 52 two costumes came out there was a lot of quote-unquote help coming from editorial in that area ah uh, good to know good to know thank you for uh setting me straight on that one well I, I don't know for a fact on that one i just know from a lot of other costumes they were directed what they should look like notice everyone had mandarin collars <laughs> that's true they did even wonder woman had her little like faux uh mandarin choker well, moving on, I really thought it was funny that even though the story predates Marvel Civil War by 15 years, they're they're starting that conversation right here, right now in Justice League Europe about superhero registration. I thought that was great. Huh. So, all right, I'll, I'll take you to task on that, though. So, yes, you're right. They're ahead of Civil War. However, you know, Marvel had been doing the whole Mutant Registration Act for oh, since the 80s. good counter. Yes, so, good and yes. this one, this one's even a little less invasive. I mean, all they want you to do is share public information, like where you are, where your headquarters is, and what your powers are. They, like Crimson Fox even makes a point of like they're not asking you for secret identities, any of that stuff. They just want the information that's public. So it's it's it does make you sort of go, eh, well, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. I mean, they're not asking for you know secret information, <laughs> just public information. Hey, you know, in the words of Wally West, you know, the T tax was just a formality too. There, Shag, until Patrick. <laughs> Henry and those guys stood up to it. <laughs> fair, fair. All right, I'll give you that. <laughs> you know, Kara's just fighting tyranny at home and abroad, so that's all she's doing. <laughs> so can we can we talk for just a second about how ridiculously angry she is about this? Like, I know, yes. And especially her expression on page four. I mean, she is just foaming at the mouth over this thing. Yeah, and it's over the top as far as I'm concerned. Like, I realize at this point in Justice League Europe, that's her shtick. You know, being angry, that's their thing. But after uh, in a recent episode, we had a really deeper discussion and investigation about Power Girl with Dr. Jennifer Schwartz-Levine. And it just, thinking about everything we talked about, this just really makes this stand out to me as like in this issue, she's just being angry for the sake of being angry. That's what they've done as the writers. It doesn't make sense for her character to be this outraged at this situation. So I just feel like yeah. it's, it's a, they're taking the opportunity to say, okay, that's her move, make her angry. And it, it just does bother me. As I'm seeing more of it, uh, I'm, I'm struggling with it. I, I can see that. I can see that. Again, I, I'm presenting the role of casual observer, and if I was microaggressed to death you know, by Wally West, I can kind of understand that level of... <laughs> rage happening. Well, um. aimed at Wally? Sure. I get that. In fact, <laughs> let's talk about that. So as a casual reader, did you feel like there was anything sort of uh, inappropriate to, uh, oh, towards women in this issue? Absolutely. Wally is the worst character. Uh, you know, I grew to love Wally in Grant Morrison's JLA run, but, you know, this version of the character where he is right now, it's kind of horrible. He's just chauvinistic and misogynistic. He's not really great. And it's not just Wally in this issue. So first off, Wally isn't this bad in his own book. 
Like, uh, Bill Nestor Loeb's was writing uh, Flash around this point, and he actually came on to Justice League Europe for a couple issues and tried to sort of course correct Wally. But uh. then he came away as the scripter. Uh, the new scripter came back, uh, came in, and, and just continued what they'd been doing before, making mm. Wally a complete lech. And that's not really him. So in here, you know, the, the, the various comments you get are Captain Adam says about her. He says, "Careful, Kath," meaning Catherine Colbert. Careful, Kath. Uh, and he's talking about Power Girl. Get too subtle with her and her brain jams. What? <laughs> he actually says. I mean, that's the kind of line you throw a guy Gardner, not Power Girl. I mean, that's just completely <laughs> insulting. And then Flash's lusty comments. He says. You're talking about the woman I lust after when I don't have any better options. Oh yeah. my God, that is yeah. awful. That's yeah, not very heroic, there, Wally. Not at all. And now there's there's such a thing as teasing your coworker and buddy, and there may be some sexual tension there too. That does happen from time to time in a workplace. But this is, I mean, this is awful. And then Crimson Fox starts flirting with Captain Adam, which is pissing off Catherine Colbert as well. I mean, she's like, "What was that about?" She gets all ticked off. And I just, I would say that this story goes beyond uh, where you could just say, oh, well, it was the times. That's the way it was in the early 90s. You know, or we're looking at it through a modern day lens. I don't think that's the case here. I think these are like egregious, really yes. wrong things to have in a comic. I, I really feel like they went too far here. I know. And I'm not seeing an HR manager at all, you know, in the embassy <laughs> around here. So, so that's strike number one against them. They really need to fix that. I guess Catherine's <clears throat> pulling double duty. Now, and, and, that's, and that's worth pointing out because there is a strange contrast here, right? Again, I just talked about the way Power Girl's treated, and it's awful. However, by contrast, we see very capable and intelligent women, Catherine Colbert and Constance uh, D'Aramis, who's the Crimson Fox, both of them in this comic are in positions of power. They're not treated poorly at all. There is no sexism or, you know, lascivious no, comments yeah. towards them. And it's just like this poor depiction of how men treat women is only targeted at certain characters. It's really strange. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, because in the upcoming scene, you have Constance talking to her to her male employee and there's no kind of sexual banter whatsoever. There's no harassment going on and it's great. Yeah, right. It, it, it's very much, you know, it, it, it is a long scene, so it did make me wonder if there's like something mm-hmm. going on there. Like, is this guy going to show up as a bad guy? Whatever. But I mean, it's it's just a regular day in the office, you know, talking to an employee, yep. telling him to go home because it's late. Very respectful. Yeah, exactly. All right. So aside from some super speed dusting that you're going to see on page 21, Crimson Fox running on the tightrope on page five is about the only superheroics you're going to see in this. <laughs> I just wanted to point that out. <laughs> Very true. It's a talky-talky issue, without a doubt. You're right. It really is. <laughs> yep. So do you think the, the name Revson is a nod to Revlon? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, without a doubt. All right. I was kind of picking up on that, too. I, I, I figured that was probably the case, but, you know, I just wanted some reassurance there. So you, you mentioned the, the kind of a text-heavy issue, right, and the Revson stuff. Let's talk about the hero-style article for just a second. Because, like, sure. they printed a real article in here. And normally in a comic, when there's like a newspaper or something, they just put like those Latin filler words, you know? But yeah, no, Laura Mipsum text. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But they legitimately wrote an article. That's a lot of commitment. That's a lot of effort. And it's sort of interesting that they 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 put it in there. It's a weird sort of article. It's not really something someone would actually write. But either way, I, I as a reader coming into this like a teenage kid, you know, that's got to be a little weird for you, find, you know, having to read an article all about this character and maybe being the son, a daughter of a, an Olympic gymnast or something like that or whatever it was. Uh-huh. Uh, well, I, I definitely agree. It was weird to see this in a comic, and especially since
sense. Um, you know, I, I buy comics for the pictures, not for the words. So getting me to <laughs> sit down and read, you know, seven paragraphs of text on one page is kind of a challenge. However, it's all in service to the story. So I think it really does add a lot of rich context to that first scene that you saw. You get a lot of um, characters thoughts and opinions about Crimson Fox. Yeah, I mean, clearly this is after uh, Catherine Colbert and Captain Adam have dealt with some flirting uh, from Crimson Fox, because Catherine's all pissed off, and she's saying, like, you know, oh, you go at, you know, Crimson Fox, go ask Captain Adam. He seems terribly interested in her. So Catherine's obviously feeling ruffled, because she's interested in Captain Adam, and here he's flirting with her. And then uh, Captain Adam's all awkward, too. He's got a couple of weird, funny bits in there, too. So it's it's an interesting bit that you can get a little bit of insight uh, on there, but then again, it goes into their, their Olympic origins, and stuff like that speculation which is obviously all wrong and then it also kind of you know puts the seal on certain things that as a new reader you might not know about the character like she drifts in and out of an english and french Ah, accent good point Um, it kind of solidifies those ideas so i found that really really helpful as a as a reader from just this issue on so i do wonder if they had planned to make crimson fox twins all along and they did that or whether it was just an accident where the writer whether because they switched scripters you know three times on the on Justice League Europe. I wonder mm-hmm. if it was just the scripters with the changes were failing to give her a French accent and so they retconned <laughs> a reason. I, I wonder which one it is. It's pretty smart retconning. Uh, yeah. I like that. Yeah. yeah. So one thing I'd love to talk about uh, the way Bart Sears decorated Constance's office real fast. Mm, or or okay. Viv- Vivian's office I should say since the, that's the identity that they share. But I actually I really like how he decorated it and it's very how would I describe it? You can tell right away that she likes to keep people at a distance. She's sitting up on a platform away from anybody that walks into her office. She's got a guard, some kind of guardian statue right there Ah. between her and anyone that might come into her space. So I just thought that was a great kind of visual way to signify that she keeps people at arm's length all the time, whether she's as the Crimson Fox or in her daily persona. See, that's cool. This is where your artistic uh, experience and talent comes in in the interpretation, because I never never would have picked up any of that but you're absolutely right yeah she's up on a raised platform all the stuff you're right she's absolutely keeping people at a distance and you know she's guarding and i never would have thought of that but yeah you and bart clearly were on the same page thinking about that this is why you pay me the big dollar shag mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I about bart's art i just want to mention like especially in that scene like you know first off uh, bart is really going all out with the sexy women in in this issue yes. um power girls costume throughout the whole issue is like so tight it leaves nothing to the imagination. You know, uh, in, in this scene, in the office, Vivian actually gets naked and she's in silhouette there. You know, Constance sure is wearing uh, fishnets and her blouse is also fitting in all the uh, interesting places. Mm-hmm. And uh, we mentioned Catherine Colbert. She's in a very tight mini skirt and heels and she's all legs. You know, so it, it as a male reader who enjoys that sort of thing, it's certainly glad to have Bart Sears back on the book. As a male reader who enjoys the other side of that conversation, I gotta <laughs> say, I enjoy Bart Sears' work quite a bit too you know nobody draws captain adam quite like bart i mean captain adam is a lot of beefcake there's no doubt about he's a lot of beefcake he's shiny in all the right places it's a great it's a great (laughs) look nobody can make him (laughs) as shiny as bart sears can that is without a doubt (laughs) and we will just leave that comment at that and go no further with that one but uh (laughs) 
I will say, and, and I have to admit, and, and I wish this wasn't true, but I have to be honest with myself. You know, Bart Sears' artwork really increases my enjoyment of Justice League Europe. It's not to say the other artists that have been in here the last couple of months weren't good, because they were, and they had some great moments too. But there's something about Bart Sears drawing the Justice League Europe comic that just makes it that much more enjoyable for me. Absolutely, absolutely. I, you know, I was here probably 85% just for the artwork alone. I knew who Bart Sears was at the time, and mm-hmm. I definitely put this picked this book up because of that but you know it's not just that he's great with you know the the human body and the form but also the body language like mm-hmm. he communicates so much and and these are twins that he's drawing for a couple of pages but i think even through just the body language alone you can tell which one is which you know constance is more stern she's more serious um you know she keeps her arms folded a lot more Vivian's definitely more flirtatious, more fun-loving. You know, she tilts her head more. Um, her hair's a little bit looser. She sits on furniture. She does these things that just Constance doesn't do. And I love that. I did not pick up on some of the things you just mentioned. I picked up on the eyes. Like, I noticed the eyes are uh, – Vivian's eyes are always drawn like bedroom eyes. Whereas yes, Constance, they absolutely are. Where Constance's aren't. Uh, so I didn't pick up on – but the the sitting on the, ta- the desk and the hair and the body language, I did not – not pick up on that. That is a really good point. Yeah, like Vivian is pretty much all sex. Like her, she just no, exudes. Yeah. yeah, she exudes sex. Whereas Constance is a lot more, you know, professional. So that's interesting. Yeah. Even the way she's wearing that turquoise blouse on page eight, mm-hmm. you know, she's wearing it almost like, you know, a girlfriend would wear her boyfriend's sweater, you know, yeah. it's just kind of loose and, and free. It's great. It's great body language. Go to page 19 real quick. Uh, there's this little thing that Bart does, which I just absolutely love. Uh, it's the last panel on page 19. Vivian's on uh-huh. the phone and he, he puts a lot of her face in shadow. And at first uh-huh. I would just assume that was the coloring, but no, he's got lines. He drew lines in there. That is part of his uh, his line style was to develop those shadows and it just looks so cool. I love that. Absolutely. Absolutely. And those shadows, they're following her fingernails from where she's holding the phone, you know, up against her mm-hmm. cheek. Mm-hmm. Um, it's great. It's great. Again, the panel right next to it, you know, she's reclining in that office chair with her legs up on oh, the yeah. desk. She's yeah. just so comfortable in her own skin. I want to be Vivian. She's great. I do too, but for inappropriate reasons. <laughs> <laughs> I am the worst. It's irredeemable. It's right in the name, folks. So, all right, and more, more, more Bart Sears stuff. Go to page four. All right. So on all page right. four, uh, you've got Catherine Colbert with the awesome hair talking to the Just League members, <laughs> and and she's decided that she needs to call a team meeting. And it's the second panel on page four, and she yep. she's puckering her lips and like shifting them to the side. I don't know what you call that lip pose. It's not duck face, but it's yeah. like puckering the lips and kind of putting them to the side. It's basically it's what people do when they're thinking. They kind of stick their it lips sure out is. and they they crank it to the side, like hmm, you know, thinking about it, and, and you can clearly tell what he's illustrating there. I mean, we've, we've talked about this before. You know, Kevin McGuire really set the tone on Justice League uh, America for, for using amazing facial expressions. And Bart Sears is just as good doing it different. I mean, people criticize Bart Sears sometimes, saying all his faces look the same, but I don't agree. I mean, Catherine's face looks very different than uh, than Cara's, Cara's face, different than Crimson Fox's face. Anyway, th- this is just a great example of the wonderful uh, facial expressions he's able to do. I, I didn't pick up on that, actually, but you're absolutely right. It's a Kevin McGuire. McGuire face 
there. It's it's almost like, you know, they're sharing little tips and tricks between the books, which mm-hmm. I love. One thing I wanted to mention is before I reread the issue, I would have sworn the cover led directly into page six, where uh, Constance is sitting at her desk talking to her male employee, holding the cover of Hero Style in her hands. And I thought that was like kind of like a Watchmen uh, miniseries kind of trick that they were doing. But, uh. oh well. Missed opportunity. It's not how the issue actually plays out, but I thought that would that would have been really fun. It is always cool when they can make the cover technically page one. You know, that is always I a neat so way too. to do that. I thought so, too. Uh, something I noticed was the twins' last name is actually spelled differently twice in the book. <laughs> Once it's the Aramis with an M-U-S, and then again uh, towards the end it's the Aramis with an M-I-S. Hmm. But after doing some research, it looks like the Aramis with the I-S became the winner. So you get one spelling with a U.S. there. That's her employee who's asking. Maybe maybe he's purposely being disrespectful. Um, <laughs> also, you're looking, fired, right? Also, looking at it, and this is this is getting super like detailed here, folks. But I, I'm looking at, <laughs> I'm looking at the digital version uh, because it, it was originally on sale on Comicsology, and I bought it there before they pulled them. But that is clearly that's dropped on top of something. There, there's another word underneath there in the original artwork, and it's clear that Miss De Aramis is a paste up because yeah in the in the digital i can zoom in and even see the outline ah. of where they pasted up mr yaramis so that may have been a mistake on their part just throwing it together last minute and paste up to replace he probably said vivian or something or constance and they they wanted to make ah. it more professional there's clearly something underneath that in the original artwork yeah and then you know, before it ever got you know published in the comic they they fixed it but i can tell by the word balloon there's like little notches in the word balloon where there's like corners of that paste up still showing through yep yep you can see a hint of it in the print copy too it's also a little too close to the word balloon for my taste. Yep, so, yeah. exactly. And, and I gotta Very say, nice. folks, I, I know not everyone has access to the digital version because it's uh, not available for purchase anymore. But man, the, the printed comic, as much as I love it, the Bart Sears art deserves the digital version because he draws with this beautiful fine line that is just gorgeous. And unfortunately, the, the ink sort of just gets eaten by the paper. I, sh- I showed Nathan before we got going here uh, an image where you could see the printed comic versus the digital version. And the digital version is just so much cleaner, so beautiful. So I hope this issue is in the next omnibus. I don't believe it's in the in volume two, but I hope everyone gets a chance to see what this looks like, uh, cleaned up and, and see Bart Sears' lines as it was always intended. It looks pretty great. I'm glad you showed that to me. Thank mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Let's see, page nine, perfect spooky castle on a cliff image, if, if ever <laughs> I saw one. Okay. It's worthy of Bernie Wrightson. Oh, nice. Pretty okay. good. Well, I got yeah. I, on the next page. So there's again. I, I was reading panel by panel mode. So on the next page, the, this Justin Jason guy or Jason Justin, whatever his name is, he's talking uh-huh. to you know the old man stuffy clubs. The second panel, all the colors change and they go all muted and it's all like grays and blues. And he's like, yes, but it's also very serious business. <laughs> Let's not forget about that. Well, in reading panel by panel mode, I mean that panel almost like made me jump. It's such a dramatic <laughs> change from the bright colors in the panel before to the dark spooky panel there. It it's gorgeous. I mean, and it was really powerful. So it, right. it, gets, it gets lost on a page here, on a full page, but panel by panel, it's gorgeous. I mean, if they want you to know that this dude is evil, they hit the nail on the head. <laughs> dude is evil. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. <laughs> 
I also really love on this page, you, you see that this secret society has a secret staircase. And you just saw another secret passageway in the Revson building where the, uh, the sisters work. Uh-huh. So I love that both them and their nemesis have, you know, secrets all around them. They have secret passages in the spaces that they live and operate out of. Um, and I really love that duality and contrast. That is really clever. Something else I never would have picked up on. Brilliant. I'm just full of great ideas there, Shane. You are. You're full of something, sir. (laughs) I've been told that. Uh, so yeah, on page 11, this Jason guy, he really goes from zero to 60. Um, as, as soon as the, the, the evil master tuner asks if he has the quote unquote price of admission, Jason just goes crazy. Hell yes, I've got it. He says, I'll show that stag a few things. Think, thinks he can bump me in a hostile takeover. Does he? I'll give him something to chew on. I mean, he's chewing on that scenery there. And (laughs) <laughs> he just that just came out of nowhere, um, which I really thought was pretty funny. It was very bizarre the first reading, but upon second reading, I, I've, I've realized that hate is the admission to the club. That's what they want is ah. hate from you. So that is the price of admission is his rage because that's what they use in the tuning. But at first, yeah, it was like, what is going on, and what's going on with his horse teeth too? At the same time, by the way, um, it was, it was, <laughs> those are some pretty big chompers, aren't they? They are. I mean, he could he could chew the crap out of an apple. But Somebody so. give that man a salt lick. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a little weird first time through. Absolutely. Oh, well, thank you for that explanation. That makes actually a lot of good sense. See, you're full of it too, Shay. Well, thank you. It, it all just comes from reading and understanding. But, you know, hey, maybe you'll get there someday. You're, you draw the funny pictures. You don't do the reading. I get it. Uh, it's that comprehension thing I have a, I have a problem with. Yeah. Understood. Understood. <laughs> So I I, uh, I noticed they were chanting in Latin on page 12. The nerd in me just had to Google what they were saying. It turns out it's actually a passage from Dante's Inferno, Ooh. Canto 1, whatever that means. I'm not a literature scholar. I, I translate it for you if you'd like to hear. I would like to hear. All right. So they're saying, Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a dark forest, for the straightforward path had been lost. So there you go. If you were curious what they were saying, now you know. I feel enlightened. (laughs) That's how I like to leave people. So as I was reading this, you know, uh, the, the, the big bad gets introduced as the master tuner. And I'm kind of thinking to myself, well, what does that mean? Well, then on page 13, he's standing in, gi- in front of a gigantic tuning floor. <laughs> so I found myself saying, oh, okay, well, that's, that's pretty literal. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was thinking, not remembering where the story's going, because I'm, I'm really not trying to read ahead. So, like, I only read this issue. And not remembering where the story's going, and I saw that tuning fork, I'm like, oh, is this, like, sonar or something? Who's, like, uh, you know, ah. lost his hair? Or, like, a weird reca- <laughs> a revamp of sonar? Sure enough, it's not the case, but that's what I thought it was going for. Not a bad guess. Not a bad guess at all. Well, it was wrong, uh. so it is a bad guess. <laughs> I got to bring up something I forgot to mention earlier that I absolutely love. When Vivian and Constance are sort of play bickering back and forth, Constance is trying to get Vivian to correct her diction. So she stops with all the Z and that and and NBV and that and that kind of thing. And she's correcting Vivian. And then Vivian gets mad and says, you sound like Porky the Pig, you know, to to Constance (laughs) at one point. Then the next page later, there's a great callback. Constance is living and she goes, that's all, folks, which I just found very, very funny. I thought that was great. Also, 
DC making great use of other Warner Brothers properties. You know, there you throw go. a Looney Tunes joke in there. Why not? You own them. So. I didn't even think about that. Good point. <laughs> but I love that. That's actually brought up later in the issue when um, Vivian's on the phone talking to the Justice League embassy and she says, oh, she's talking to Sue. She says, this is the, and then she corrects herself, this is the Crimson Fox. So, right. you know, she's taking Constance lessons to heart. So that's pretty good. I'm imp- or she's trying to impersonate Constance. I don't know which. True. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the Cloud Corners. Cloud Corners has to be my absolute favorite comics motif for flashbacks. And I think I've even used them in my own work when I've done long form comics before. So this might have been where I picked it up. So, uh, you know, I applaud Mr. Sears for, for introducing me to that concept. I think it looks great. You know, normally flashbacks are like just rounded corners, right? And here, yeah. and, and they'll do the whole panel around. Here he did the, he did it as a page. You know, you get the nine panel grid, which tells you Keith Giffen to the layout. But then yeah. rather than rounded corners on every single panel, he just did cloud corners on the four edges. And it looks really cool. And it does, it's very effective. Yeah. It tells exactly what you need to do. And I love the way Vivian tells the story. It's almost like a fairy tale, the way she says it, you know, or, or a script. She's like, you know, open with multinational perfume corporation and the, and the lovely dedicated female chemist in the research, you know, then the plot twist. It's just, it's really charming the way it's written, the, like, the story. It is, it is. And, you know, it's a great setup because she's reading the article and she's like, well, how would I write it? You know, mm-hmm. so that's a great way to kind of introduce somebody to telling their own story. You're absolutely right. That's great. So let's talk about her origin real fast. What do you think of her actual, you know, superhero origin? I think it's fine. They they jump from the trauma of her mom, which is really what the story's about. The story's about her mom and her and her quote unquote dad, I guess the guy that raised them. There's very little about her. I mean, she goes from finding out her mom was murdered to becoming the Crimson Fox in like four panels and only two of them are, <laughs> are about her. So she did make the leap from being upset to being a superhero real quick in the flashback. So we don't we get more about the parents than we do about her. So it's it's a pretty fast leap. It really is. Yeah, we don't get her training with ninjas or her trip to Rajahul <laughs> or anything like that. But you know um, she you know she did it. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel very much like a Batman character origin, which I really, really appreciate. You know, anytime you got chemicals, perfumes, murder. My parents are dead. Parents dying, obviously. You know, it's all the it's all the ingredients for a perfect Batman character origin. So I do like, you know, as I was reading this, it's like, this seems pretty familiar. And then they kind of clinch the deal with that second to last panel by actually putting Batman right there and saying, you know, we took our cue from the American Batman. It's like, okay, well, so did the writer. Great. Okay. We're all on the same page here. I didn't even really think about the similarities of Batman other than just like, oh, it's a costume identity. But you're right. Yeah, the the you know the millionaire, rich, you know, sort of thing, the parents murdered, all that is very tied into Batman. I did not think about that at all. Now, it I is, do feel yeah. like it's pretty distinct, though, being, you know, the twins and the fact that they're, we, if we're going to find out they have these pheromone powers. And so I feel like there's some distinct differences. But, yeah, I could, I could see some similarities, too, which, which sort of works because the first time we meet her, uh, it's it's Vivian or Constance, whichever, on stage with Bruce Wayne uh, at a gala. It was the first ah. time we met them several issues back. That's where we first met her. So she was sort of in a French Bruce Wayne kind of, you know, super rich uh, socialite role. Well, that kind of makes sense even more. Uh, so on page 20, let's talk about that creepy tone that Bart Sears set up. It is super creepy. So we're talking about old man Stank watching Constance on the video monitor? Absolutely. Yep. You know, touching images of women on screen is never a good look and you know that certainly applies here 
uh, it just makes this guy super, super creepy. I just wanted to throw that out there. Well, you're you're right on there, but I mean, like his mouth <laughs> is kind of hanging open, and he's got like the creepy, you know, predator eyes and stuff like that. Yeah, and yep. and, and her like the first shot is it's a close up of, of her face, but also her bosom. So I mean, it's yeah, the way the fish bowl of the yeah. the TV monitor is, you know, it kind of accentuates that, yep. but not really on purpose. Yeah, it's 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 a good good move to make this guy look creepy. Oh yeah, it's successfully done. Yes. So in between pages 20 and 21, I got to give a quick shout out that there's an ad for Dave Comics um, nice. in here, which is the uh, comic book shop I went to when I was a kid. It's not the one I picked up this issue at, but uh, it was right down the street. Aww. Just had to say that. Represent Richmond. Represent Richmond. You got it. So uh, I got to say thank you to Stag on page 22 for reminding us actually where we are because, you know, the, the book is called Justice League Europe, and I always forget which country they're actually in at the time. So he, <laughs> he states that they're in the city of London, so that uh, that brought me back to where this is actually taking place. So thank you, Stag. That's a good point. That's the only reference to it. And and I will say on page twenty two, thank you because uh, there's the Silver Sorceress. Thank you, Bart Sears, for reminding me <laughs> she's even on the team. Like, right? She's never around. They you now they did a little bit with her during the Extremist story, but that's because she was you know deeply tied to that. So I uh-huh. really hope they start doing more with her because I completely forgot she was even a member of the team until she showed up on that panel. I'm like, oh, yeah, there she is. Absolutely. And putting my new reader hat on for a second again, page 22 is filled with all kinds of characters. I'm like, who are these people? Mm. Silver Sorceress is one of them. You know, and she just looks so mysterious with her cape drawn and her head hanging low, her eyes closed. And, you know, just talking about I feel something like, well, who is she? What's her story all about? But then also this guy Java. You know, Uh. I didn't know a whole lot about who Stag was. I didn't know his relationship to Metamorphosis morpho back when i first picked up this issue and i'm just like who is this hulk looking guy with these metal arms what is his story and just the fact that he's so standoffish he just says flake off red to rocket red (laughs) who is this guy i want them to greenlit a miniseries stat oh my gosh Uh, that's a lot based on one panel but you know under bart sears pencil he does look a lot like the gray hulk he really does doesn't he yeah Yeah. and those metal arms i'm pretty sure that's a callback to the last time we saw him in just League Europe when he handled Metamorpho's baby and his his arms melted basically is what Ooh. happened. So I'm pretty sure that's what this is a reference to. Another reason I will never have kids. Thank you. Right. Oh, exactly. I mean, that's that you is melt a, your a, arms off. That's a real danger. I mean, I was always very careful with my daughter. <laughs> so I do I do like that Simon Stagg shows up though because I really like him as a reoccurring sort of antagonist, especially the the non superpowered kind, a reoccurring antagonist for the book. I like that aspect of it. Even it, it fits well with Metamorpho, but it just makes a good foil for the team. Me too, me too. You know, the DC Universe is not short on you know, corporate evil guys but <laughs> Simon Stagg was always like so much more fun than Lex Luthor, you know? And I think this might have been my first introduction to him where he's all, you know, jumping up and down yeah. crying, you know, what happened to my plant? Where's my plant? I just thought he, he's kind of a fun foil. And, and you know what? This page actually highlights something else too is that this issue they've really improved on something they struggle with a few issues ago, which is introducing and identifying each new character as they appear in the book. For example, that panel where Java shows up, you know, uh, Rocket Red specifically says, it's good to see you're doing better, Java. So as a new reader, you got his name. Like, okay, I know that guy's named Java. In the the beginning of the issue, I was looking specifically to see if they got better about it because previous issues, like, characters would show up, you wouldn't know who they were, you wouldn't know their name, you wouldn't know anything about them. 
They were just there doing stuff. And I realized as a new reader, you would know. But here, everyone, they were very particular about introducing everyone. They made sure each character was saying the names to each other. So it was they did a really good job of introducing everyone. And I feel like that that's some progress uh, that the team has made in the book so, uh, recently. That's the number one rule of comics. Every single comic is somebody's first comic. So you got to set your stage and name your characters. Absolutely. Yep. yep. All right. And I only have one final note for page 23. Mm-hmm. Dune. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do Are wonder. Are we on Arrakis? What's going on here? I do wonder if this came from someone really enjoying the uh, Dune because I don't think Tremors was out yet. So uh, I don't know. Well, all right, we're going to do oh, some I googling. Look that up. We're doing googling here. Tremors movie came out in nineteen. Oh my gosh, nineteen ninety. No, nineteen ninety. Stinking oh. way. Yep. So so this is post Tremors fever. Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody was very familiar with Kevin Bacon taking on those those desert worms. So this is either a Tremors reference or a Dune reference, one or one or both. It, it, you know, and Beetlejuice came in and came out in '89. So so giant earthworms were having a real moment in the late '80s, early '90s. I That's say. fair. That's very fair. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I've got a couple of notes myself. I do love the continuing gag of Metamorpho watching Three Stooges. I think that's excellent. I sort of miss him watching it, watching him in French, but, you know, hey, I'll take what I can get. I like uh, that Kilowog has been part of the team now. For, he's only been really in the books for about a year, and already he's accepted as, like, almost like a foundational part of the team. Like, everyone just accepts that he's there. They might grumble about their repairs or whatever, but, and there's nothing about him being the new guy or anything. Uh, he's just part of the, the core of what makes up the Justice League. And for me, you know, I, I enjoy him as a Green Lantern, but for me, he will always be the JLI handyman. That is who Kilowog is for me. Yeah, yeah. He kind of has this whole Scotty thing going on. He's just yeah. kind of like the chief engineer in the background. And with a surly attitude. Yes, it's absolutely perfect. <laughs> I didn't get a whole lot of characterization out of Kilowog from this issue. So I, I don't really have a lot to say about him. He's really just there at the very front hammering on stuff. But that's yeah. about it. Well, he gives kind of a snarky, one snarky comment to Wally. And then, yeah, he's hammering on stuff. And he's like, get in there, you blasted widget. Or all, and I'm like, that, that's all I needed to know. I mean, that's everything. And, and then they talk about how he, you know, destroyed the Paris embassy recently. So it's all kind of there, for me at least. And uh, I, I'm just yes. thrilled to see him as, as accepted uh, without any, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just happy because that's where I want him to be. That's my happy place is him as the handy. Yeah. Man. Who isn't happy when they're seeing Kilowog? Kilowog's great. Exactly. And then my last note is on page two is something that I deal with in my own work life. That here is a work situation which is Wally comes up. First thing he says is he's com- he walks up to Captain Adam and Catherine Colbert and just walks up and starts complaining. and says, you know, how much longer do we have to put up with this insane renovation? And Catherine goes, I'm very well, Wally. And yourself? And I can't tell you how often in the morning my coworkers, like, I'll message them a question about work or I'm like, you know, I'm totally in the work mode. And they're like, good morning. And I'm like, oh, crap. I completely forgot the niceties. I, you know, I, I just suck at this. I suck at being a human being. I'm good at my job. I suck at being a human being. <laughs> being. So in this instance, I'm sort of like Wally West, I guess. Man, Shag, let people have their sip of coffee first. <laughs> I know, but it, when it's go time, it's go time. 
<laughs> All right. Well, wow. We have we have exhausted this issue within an inch of its life. So you know, overall, you know, you got to tell me, do you love it? Do you hate it? Was it you know, in rereading it again after all this time, is it as much as you remember? What do you think? I mean, if I had to remove the nostalgia factor from it, it still holds up pretty well. Um, if I was reading this for the first time, I'd really enjoy it. It just it has all those warm fuzzy memories to me. It's hard to remove those from my review here, and, and that's fair. Now, for me, I haven't read this comic in what thirty two years, so I had no recollection going in. So it is almost like reading it for the first time. And I feel like other than the the male chauvinism or sexist stuff that went on, I think it's a great solid issue. It's a lot of fun. There's some great character moments. There's a lot of interaction. You find out about this character, this Crimson Fox, who really needed to be fleshed out. And uh, it's enjoyable. And it ends with a giant worm. So, I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> I, think it's I think it's a total win. Now, folks, before we get to the coveted One Punch Award, we are going to take a second for Nathan to deliver a... Character Spotlight. This is where I ask the guest to share some thoughts on one of the characters from the issue. Not really an origin recap, and in this case, since we're going to be talking about Crimson Fox, no need for an origin recap. It's right here in the comic. Uh, but kind of where the character was in the DC, maybe before joining the JLI, or what the impact the JLI had on their career. So, Nathan, you want to tell us a little bit about the Crimson Fox, or foxes, I guess. <laughs> you got it, Shaq. So, she first appeared in Justice League Europe number six, but both of the sisters were only around for a couple of years. After this issue, Vivian went went full-time as the Crimson Fox, while Constance ran Revson. Vivian started an affair with Metamorpho, but that turned into a love triangle when her long-thought-dead husband, René, appeared as the vigilante La Fantôme. She eventually went with René, and the two of them faked their deaths. Again! She's getting to be a real (laughs) pro at this. So Constance took up the, the Crimson Fox mantle and went searching for her sister, who she knew wasn't dead. She's, she's been around this block before. Right. <laughs> so she found both Vivian and Renee in the hands of their old nemesis, Old Man Stank. Old Man Stank. <laughs> <laughs> so Old Man Stank made Metamorpho choose just one twin to save from a death trap, and Metamorpho chose to save Constance. And that happened in Justice League International 104. So poor old Vivian. I have no recollection I, of any of that. <laughs> yeah, so welcome to the regular 99% of humanity. Uh, <laughs> so later, while try, trying to reform the JLE, uh, the new mist slit Constance's throat in Starman, uh, Volume 2, Issue 38, from January 1998. So, the, so the, the poor DRMA sisters were not long for this world. Wow. Now, I remember the Starman issue, because they also killed Blue Devil there. Yes, yes. And that it seemed like a really cool Justice League that she was trying to put together. So that was a uh, Firestorm, Blue Devil, Crimson Fox. Uh, it was pretty right? awesome. Yeah. Yeah. A new Crimson Fox was introduced in Green Lantern Volume 4, Number 11, from June 2006. She somehow inherited the original sister's company and resources, but it's not yet known how. She was forcefully recruited by the Global Guardians while they were being mind-controlled by the faceless bounty hunter Chun Yul. Yul was using them to collect a bounty on Hal Jordan, but was stopped by the combined efforts of Green Lantern, the Justice League, and the Rocket Red Brigade. So weird. Again, I was. I, this is the Jeff Johns era of Green Lantern, right? It sure was. Yep, early on in that run. No recollection of this either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it was during the whole Green Lantern Wanted uh, run. So if you're looking to pick up these issues, I believe it was issues 11 through 16 or 17. So I think I kind of, even though I read them, I think I was checked out between Rebirth and the Sinestro Corps War. I think is what happened. Sure. Yeah. Easy to understand. <laughs> <laughs> 
So she was seen in several episodes of Justice League Unlimited, and she even has her own action figures from the series. She came in a six-pack that also featured Superman, Deadman, Biwana Beast, Commander Steel, and Vibe. Oh my gosh, that sounds like the coolest six-pack of all time. Holy crap. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? You know, if I saw that at my local Goodwill, I would absolutely pick it up. Yeah, it probably goes for a jillion (laughs) dollars on eBay, but man, that sounds glorious. Biwana Beast, Commander Steel, and Vibe, and Crimson Fox, all one pack. No offense, Superman and Deadman, I'm sorry. But the rest of those are amazing. (laughs) So she's been played in live action by two actresses, but just on one show, just like you said, NBC's Powerless. She was first portrayed by Atlan Mitchell in the pilot episode Wayne or Lose, and later by Deanna Russo in subsequent episodes called I'm a Friend You and Win Luther Draw. (laughs) Great, great episode title, by the way, Win Luther Draw. I love that. Awesome. I know. So I got to say, though, the live action. Action Crimson Fox costume is one of the most horrendous costumes I've ever seen. <laughs> it's really bad. I, I see where they tried to make the masks a little bit emulate the hood from the Justice League comics, yeah. but it, it, it didn't work. No. But if you're, yeah, if you're not going big, go home. Yeah. Like, just <laughs> go big. <laughs> and, and I say it again, folks. If you've watched Powerless and you didn't like it, give it another try. Oh my gosh. It is such a clever, smart show. And if I remember right, I want it. Uh, boy, I could be. I'm going on a limb here. Maybe I'll edit this out. But I think the people that developed the Harlow Kid animated series also worked on Powerless. So there's a lot of overlap. <laughs> it is a great series. I will I will definitely second that. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for that recap on, on uh, Crimson Fox. I learned a lot that I have read and have no recollection of. So that was wonderful. <laughs> uh, so with that, folks, we are now going to transition into the One Punch Award. This is where we nominate our favorite moment from the issue, whether it be fantastic or shocking or dramatic or funny or awe-inspiring or or whatever. Both myself and Nathan will pick one moment, and only one will be awarded the coveted One Punch Award. Nathan, what is your suggestion? (laughs) All right, Shag. So this was a pretty tough assignment for this issue. There is just not a lot to get too excited about here. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Installing new power systems is not very exciting. (laughs) Arguing about policy is not very exciting. Conversations with middle management is not very exciting working out a schedule with your sibling is not very exciting (laughs) going down memory lane is not very exciting now granted secret societies can be pretty exciting but this one worships a giant tuning fork so right (laughs) i think i'm just gonna go have to go for it and put all my money on the big worm reveal oh that's good that's good okay all right (laughs) what you got sir I struggle all the same reasons. I struggled. I came. I came up with three, none of which I was too excited about. Though one was just the origin recap because they did mm-hmm. it in two pages, which is pretty impressive. Because there's a like when I wrote the recap. I found out just how difficult that was to do because the bulk of my recap was just these two pages. So they packed a lot of story in here. So I, I, I like that. Um, I also liked, and, and again, I, I called you out for skipping it, but the reveal of Vivian, when she pulls off the hood, like that's supposed to be a bit of a gasp moment. Like, oh, it's the same woman under the hood. How is that possible? But again, we lost that effect because we knew her origin for so long. So I, I my third one was the giant sandworm. 
So I think <laughs> as a like wow kapow kind of moment, I think I, I'm going to have to agree with you. I think we're going to go with the giant tremors, dune, sandworm thing. Uh, <laughs> that that I think we're going to agree that is probably what should win the One Punch Award this issue because it's also just like what the heck is this? Right, right. It's the only thing that really came out of left field to me. Yeah, you know, I wish the twin reveal had had a little bit more of a kick to it, but for me, it just didn't since it was my first you know, introduction to the character. Well, I think there could have been done a little bit better too in the art because it's, it's the third panel on the page and she's just pulling back her cowl. And I feel like there could have been a little bit more dramatic. Like if they had left it as the final panel of a page, like she's about to pull off her cowl and you got to flip the page to see who she is, you know, cause that's that you can design a story to really have impact by doing that, uh, to force them to turn the page to get the reveal, but you didn't get that here. So yeah, it's, it wasn't quite set up as well as it should. So yeah, we're giving it to the giant freaking sandworm. Woohoo! So, I picked a winner. Congratulations, giant freaking sandworm. Uh, you are the winner of the One Punch Award. Please wear it with pride. It is as tangible as our love for that moment. Now, Nathan, I need to ask a favor. Uh, would you mind hanging out here at the London Embassy for a bit? Because, like, I'm worried about all the, like, uber nerds coming over here and demanding to see the sandworms from Dune or the graboid worms from Tremors or whatever. Do you mind, or, or, for, or from Beetlejuice, do you mind holding them off for a little while? Well, sure. But, you know, if I accidentally step out of these embassy doors and get transported to the worm-infested dunes of Saturn, I'm going to be very upset because you cannot get that orange sand out of your clothes, buddy. <laughs> I can make no promises. I can make no promises. <laughs> but I do promise that we will bring you back at the end of the show one way or another. So, uh, folks, while Nathan's taking care of that for us, I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called Justice Law. Right, folks, let's get into this. So if you want to be part of the feedback, remember, go out to our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI, and look for the post on this episode. That's where most of the discussion is going on. You can also follow us on Twitter at JLI Podcast or Facebook as Justice League International Blahaha Podcast because we want you to be part of the discussion. Share your feedback on these comics, on these episodes, everything, the characters, whatever. As I always say, it's about building a community of online JLI fans around the show. And remember, when you're posting comments, if you're outside of the United States, just let me know and we will assign you the appropriate embassy. Now, we're going to get into your comments. Uh, we're going to be pulling from the website, email, social media, all those things. Just going to be pulling bits and pieces. We're going to be focusing on the most recent episode where we covered Justice League International, special number two, featuring the Huntress with my guest, Laurel, the universally beloved Laurel. Oh, my gosh. Everybody enjoyed her on the show. So first comment comes from Gus Casals from our Argentina embassy. He does shows such as the Alfred Pennyworth Presents podcast and his Legion 60 Years Later podcast. Gus says, great episode. Interestingly, this is the only piece of JLI paraphernalia I've never owned in any shape or form. The truth is, I really did not care about this version of the Huntress back then. and didn't care for any of the non-Wayne iterations until post-No Man's Land. And yes, Laurel has me now curious about it. Awesome, Gus. I hope you checked it out. Then we heard from Siskoid from the Canadian Embassy and the Firewater Podcast Network. He does shows such as FW Team Up, Who's Editing, and more. Siskoid says, I started the Huntress series, but stopped reading it before the end, because I didn't realize at the time that this was essentially Cancelled Comics Cavalcade with the last couple issues of the series. Huh. 
That's a fun comparison, Cisco. They were from Sean Ross from the Pulp to Pixel Network. He does shows such as Marvel, Secret Wars, and Beyond and the never-ending reading pile. Sean says, great episode. I encountered Joe Staten's art in the 1980s in things like Millennium and Green Lantern Corps, so I missed his heyday and did not love his work. So imagine my surprise when I picked up Huntress number 1 and saw Staten doing this new charcoal-style art on a very adult take on the character. Suddenly, his cartoony style sung for me. The 1980s Huntress book was dark, but it was ahead of its time, and I can't recommend it enough. Sean goes on to say, Laurel did a great job capturing what makes Helena special and unique in the Bat family. Like Laurel, I would highly recommend the Batman Huntress Cry for Blood miniseries. Ah, Thanks, Sean. They heard from Martin Gray from the Scottish Embassy in the Too Dangerous for Girl blog. Martin says, It's so great to finally have Laurel on the show. That's an amazing look at Helena, this character of the post-crisis Huntress she gave. I've never been the biggest fan of Helena 2, but Laurel has me reconsidering. Then Martin says, Mind, Huntress surely has a weird attitude at this time. Has she been drinking diet soda? Oh, Martin, too soon, too soon. Then Martin goes on to say, To me, she comes across as utterly obnoxious a couple of times. There's nothing controlling about Max having spare costume for her as he has a spare costume for everyone. It's considerate and professional. And those comments towards Fire were simply unnecessary and unwarranted. B wasn't being rude, just making conversation and giving. Then Martin goes on to say, Joey Cavallari writes fantastic JLI banter. They should have given him a shot at the main title. Then later he says, uh, I don't get why at the end of the issue, Huntress leans into the idea that she's oh so very alone after seeing that the JLA were there for her. I'm glad she had another shot with the Justice League later on. And then Martin ends it by saying, I must say, these meanwhile shows tend to be outstanding. Aw, well thank you, Martin. I really appreciate that. They were heard from Chris Franklin, who's part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does shows such as JLU Cast, Power Records, and more. Chris says, great discussion on a comic I'm not sure I even knew existed. I wanted to like this Hunter series, but I just couldn't get behind it. I run hot and cold with Staten in this era, and I feel bad saying anything negative about his artwork because he's such a nice guy, and I love much of his work. I'll just say that I agree with the consensus that his overstylization is not my cup of tea here, particularly Helena's huge forehead and square flat top. Yeah, I gotta agree with you there, Chris. Absolutely. Then Chris says, I really began to like the Huntress character once she came over to the Bat Family books. And I agree with Shag, shockingly, that the pre-Jim Lee redesign, the head-to-toe Total Justice version, is my favorite of Helena Bartonelli as well. Then he says, hot take, I still love the Earth 2 Huntress best. She was one of the shining examples of why Crisis wasn't needed or should have at least kept Earth 2 around. (laughs) Hey, Chris, you know what I always say. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion, even if yours happens to be wrong. (laughs) (laughs) They were heard from Jason Lady, author of the young adult humorous fantasy adventure novels Monster Problems, Super Problems, and now Time Problems. Jason writes, Laura was a great guest and got me interested in the Huntress series. It sounds really good. Then he says, I like Huntress, but always thought she was an odd fit for the JLI. I appreciate Shag's insight into that Helfer was the editor of her book, too. I know that sometimes they had a hard time with territorial editors not letting their characters be in the JLI. So I can see why Huntress would get brought in. But she's even more of a loner in Urban Vigilante than Batman. A high-profile, globetrotting gig just doesn't seem like her thing. Though I know she was good in the Grant Morrison JLA, the problem was they made her a member then and didn't do anything with her, which is odd. Yeah, I agree. You know, this has happened with a few characters. Uh, Huntress is one. Some of the New Gods characters are others that join the JLI and just just are kind of there. You know, whereas someone like Fire and Ice got brought in and they really found a groove for them pretty quickly, there are some characters, unfortunately, which just kind of got lost in the shuffle. They heard from Captain Entropy. He says, I've never read this comic, but I really enjoyed this episode. Laurel was a thoughtful and well-informed guest and Shag was a gracious and humble host. What? Oh my gosh, Captain Entropy is seriously sucking up. I think it's because he wants to be in an upcoming episode. Anyway, uh, Captain Entropy continues, I always enjoyed both versions of the Huntress, and I was generally on her side in her conflicts with Batman, which often seemed trumped up. 
I thought your discussion of the character was insightful. I think you came to a similar conclusion about Helena's characterization as the MASH cast discussions about Margaret Houlihan. She's not inconsistent, she's just complex. Then Captain Entropy goes on to say, both the one-punch moments were outstanding for all the reasons you covered. I've done that journey's end stare myself as I absorbed the moment and began to contemplate what's next. I'm happy to see it in a comic. Well, thank you so much, Captain Entropy. Then we heard from Jeremy Patrick from the Australian Embassy. Jeremy says, Laura was a great guest and this was a nice episode. You guys were a lot nicer to the comic than I would have been. The artwork was terrible and there were a ton of characters, the kid, the cop, the trainer, the mob boss, who come completely out of nowhere if you're a JLI fan. Selling this as a JLI special is almost false advertising. You know, Jeremy, I think I like the comic more than you, but you make a fair point about not knowing who these characters were. I mean, if I didn't have Laurel on the episode to talk with me about who these characters were, you're right, they'd be meaningless. So yeah, it really is uh, Huntress issue number 20, without a doubt. Then we heard from Symbol Pending from our UK embassy. They run the Symbol Pending Power Girl blog. Uh, in regard to Huntress and Power Girl, they make an interesting observation. Symbol Pending says, It's funny how their personalities seem to, with a few wobbles, swap over between Kara and Helena, with Power Girl starting out angry and becoming calm, and vice versa. You know, that is interesting. For a pairing of those two characters, their personalities do sort of switch back and forth. I hadn't thought of that. Then Symbol Pending says, Unlike a lot here, I actually quite like Helena's long, gaunt face. It makes her look distinctive compared to the others, though I agree the art in places a little inconsistent. The line between Helena and B seems in keeping with the general cattiness that seems to be happening between the female characters in these JLI comics. Though I suspect which side you emphasize depends on which comic series you came in with. Very interesting observation. And we'll have Mark Baker Wright from the Not Your Father's Autobot podcast. Mark says, just caught an obscure reference that I imagine is lost on most folks today. That bit towards the end when the bad guys tell Hunter she's on her own and Beetle from the Bug says, well now I wouldn't say that... The clear emphasis on the last word tells me that's a reference to The Great Gildersleeve, one of the more famous radio sitcoms in the 1940s and, and arguably the first ever spinoff, being built around a character from Fibber McGee and Molly. Specifically, this line was a catchphrase of Peavy, the pharmacist character. He said it at least once pretty much every time he appeared. The line's probably more famous today from a couple of old Warner Brothers cartoons such as Drafty Daffy and The Old Gray Hair. Even those, then, were obvious references to the Peavy character and his catchphrase. Wow, yeah, I never would have caught that. Now, that's something I would expect from J.M.D. Mateus. I don't know enough about Joey Cavallari to know about his passion for old pop culture, but uh, it's definitely in keeping with JLI, that's for sure. Then we heard from Tim Price with the Outcasters, Batman and the Outsiders podcast, and the Batgirl Huntress podcast. Tim says, I did buy the first couple issues of Huntress when it first came out, but it was actually too disturbing for my sensibilities back then, so I didn't continue. But I tried to read along with the Huntress podcast, and I guess I'm older and edgier now because it didn't bother me. It's a great read, and I quite recommend it. Yes, Staten's art is hit and miss, but always interesting and moody. You heard from Liz Ann Oswald. She says, I have to disagree with Shag. Helena Wayne was a great version of The Huntress. One of the reasons I became a fan of Paul Levitt's work since he wrote those backups in the old Wonder Woman comics. Liz also says, I have been a big fan of Huntress since I started reading her comics as a child. One of my reading classes, the teacher, Miss Jackson, would have comics for us to read in study hall. Uh, Batman in the 60s was there, along with the other Superman one, and other DC characters from the 1970s, along with a few stray issues of different comics. One of them was a Firestorm issue. Woohoo! Uh, one of them was a the issue where Batman fought Hugo Strange, dressed up as Batman. And the other one was a few issues of Wonder Woman that had the Huntress backups. I read mostly the Huntress backups. That's awesome that the teacher provided comics. That's That's really cool, Liz. Uh, And then Liz says, uh, about the end of the Huntress special where she burns her costume, uh, Liz says, I'm not sure incinerating all of her gadgets like that that she has built was a great idea. Uh, Could cause a minor explosion, which would draw attention to her. (laughs) I thought about that. Yeah, that that costume with all the various gadgets could seriously cause a major, major problem in in the furnace. So that's great. Thank you, Liz. 
Then we heard from AJ from the Right On Network. He does shows such as the Hunters Podcast, Straight Out of the Federation, and a whole bunch more over at the Right On Network. AJ says, wow, I thought this was a wonderful episode with Shag and Laurel. For 18 years, I've tried to express what makes Helena Bertinelli a wonderful character. And for six years, I've tried to express why she is such a great character in podcast form. But in this one episode of JLI, I felt like you two nailed it. I've always enjoyed her spunky heart exterior, yet her soft, compassionate interior when she allows someone in. Laurel's succinct insight and Shag's genuine inquisitiveness made for such a great listen. Aw, AJ, you are far too kind. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Then we hear from Adam Ackerman, who goes by Centaurin, uh, at our Denmark embassy. So Adam addresses in the first page, I had mentioned there was the Moosewood Cookbook, which is uh, famously a vegetarian cookbook, and yet Huntress is mentioning chicken recipes. So Adam actually posted pictures of his own Moosewood Cookbook and says, you know, it's weird to use a well-known vegetarian cookbook and a mention of a meat dish. However, it's possible that the artist or writer knew of it more from the restaurant than the cookbook it's after. The restaurant was formed in 1972 as a workers' collective and served food that today would be called flexitarian, strongly leaning towards vegetarian and farm to fork. Huh. Thank you, Adam. Always with the insights. Interesting. Then we heard from Mike Dinas from our Pacific Canadian Embassy. Mike says, what an interesting and fantastic episode. Laurel was such a delight as a guest. Then he says, though I was deep into the JLI at this point, I have no memory of this special. I may have passed on this special and the Mr. Miracle special because I wasn't too into those characters. And having their logos to be the larger type on the cover was probably the only thing I saw. But thanks to the show, it makes me want to hunt these specials down and read them. Then we heard from Michael Kramer, who posted pictures of his Total Justice and Justice League America Huntress action figures. Uh, those are absolutely my favorite version of Huntress. So thank you, Michael, for posting those. Then we heard from some folks going through our back catalog of episodes, who I guess someday, <laughs> when they catch up, will hear this feedback. Uh, Norman Wynn says, I discovered this podcast last week, and let me tell you, I'm loving it. I'm getting back into my old collection of this favorite JL team. Also, Norman, welcome to the embassy. Then we heard from Denim Jedi, who's been listening to the back catalog as well, says, Finish listening to the Meanwhile episode about Mr. Miracle and Dr. Fate. And when it came out, I never gave Dr. Fate a try due to financial limitations, but now that I have the Infinite app, I have deep-dived because of your show, and I am loving the series. That's awesome, Denim Jedi. I'm so glad you're enjoying the Dr. Fate series. It's so stinking good. Then we heard from John Wilson, the Superman in Crisis podcast. John's an old buddy who's been listening to the show. He's several episodes behind, but he is working his way along. He says, I want to give you a shout-out and congratulations for having a continuous streak of production ever since the July 2020 episode. You haven't missed a month, and that deserves props. Aw, thank you so much for noticing, John. I sincerely appreciate that. You know, in the early days of the show, I did miss a month from time to time. It's just life gets in the way. But since, I guess since the pandemic, really, uh, the guests have all been a lot more available and so have I. I don't know. But yeah, uh, we've been on a streak. I thought, you know, now that we say it aloud, we're probably going to blow it. But yeah, since July 2020, we've had an episode every month. Hopefully, we'll keep that up to the end. Fingers crossed. All right, folks, this is the part of the show where I want to thank everyone who helped promote the Justice League International Blah Ha Ha podcast. And they've done this on their own social media timelines, whether it be Facebook or Twitter. All it takes to be on this list is on Facebook, share it, and on Twitter, just retweet it. And it is a long list of names. I know that, and I say that every month. But guys, these people help promote the show. So it's important to me that they get recognized as individuals because they are contributing to this community. This time we've got over 70 names. So here's everyone that helped promote the last episode by sharing on Facebook or retweeting on Twitter. So our thanks go to Adam Ackerman, Andre TFG, Between the Pages blog, Captain Freakout Psychedelic Radio, Captain Wings in the Comic Crypt, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Lydon, Coffee and Comics and their Day of High Adventure podcast, Dave Steele and the Attack of the Alligators, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, David Ace Gutierrez, Denim Jedi, Dr. Jennifer Swartz-Levine, Ed Moore, Emo Scott Pilgrim, Frederico Hernandez, Geek to Me Radio, Glenn Tideman, Homework the Podcast, Joe Tonello, John Coos, John Wilson, Justin Steiner, Kichi Baker, Con L., 
Laurel and Mountain Flower 1, Liz Ann Oswald, Long Box of Darkness, Mark Baker Wright, Martin Gray, Martin Kogan, Matt Anderson, Matthew Cody, Maz at Mazinger 1978, Michael Kramer, Michael Thomas, Mick Jameson, Mike Dynas, Mike Jameson, Olavo Lima, Patrick Pence and Patrick's Tactics and Tutorials, Paul Hicks, Paul Kean, Pragmatic Gollum, Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast, Raphael Bezerra, Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Rob Kelly and his Digest Cast, For All Mankind Super Friends Podcast, Mountain Comics, Superman Movie Minute, and Treasury Comics Accounts, Roger Preeb, Sean Ross and Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Siskoid, Steve Gibbons, Superman Radio Revisited Podcast, Symbol Pending, The Bat Pod, The Pat at Pat Stuff NS, Tim Price and the Outcasters, Batman and the Outsiders Podcast, Trent Lewis, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Right On Network, and Zek Cap Boots. Woof! My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI podcast. Folks, your feedback is such a critical part of the show, and the community of JLI fans we're building together is absolutely fantastic, so thank you. And if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am terribly sorry. It was probably Laurel's fault. Okay, that's probably not true. It's probably not Laurel's fault at all. But let me know if I did miss you, and I'll be sure to include you on the next episode. So please keep those cards and letters coming, folks, at our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. That is where most of the action is going on, so leave your comments there. Over on Facebook, you can find us as JLI Podcast or Justice League International Blah Ha Ha Podcast. On Twitter, we're JLI Podcast, and our email address is jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Laurel for appearing on the most recent episode of the show, and thanks to you listeners for such an amazing collection of feedback. Now we're going to take a quick podcast promo break, and when we come back, we'll see if we can bring Pat and Nathan together in the same embassy, or perhaps we'll try something different for the first time in the history of this podcast. Stay tuned. In 2011, the irredeemable Shag and Aqua Rob Kelly teamed up to create the Fire and Water podcast. In 2016, they teamed up with Ryan Daly, the Franklins, and Siskoid to form the Fire and Water Podcast Network. A network built on teaming up needs a show about team-ups. Marvel team-up. Yes. The brave and the bold? You know it. Marvel 2-in-1. It's clobbering time. DC Comics presents... Of course. Supervillain team-up? Good idea. Youngblood X-Force? Mmm, technically. FW Team-Up, coming this summer, only from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It was 1938. The country continues its slow recovery from the Great Depression, while war clouds loom throughout Asia and German aggression builds in Europe. Americans seek comfort and distraction. It was a time when the most popular form of entertainment was radio, but a new form had been growing steadily and was set to explode. It was to become the golden age of the American comic book. My name is Chris. And my name is Mike. Please join us as we explore comics in the Golden Age between 1938 and 1955. All genres will be discussed, from superheroes to crime, horror, science fiction, humor, and western. So join us for the Comics in the Golden Age podcast, available through iTunes and Stitcher, and visit us on Facebook or at comicsinthegoldenage.com.
Okay, folks, we're back from break, and yes, it does appear the JLI Teleporter has brought both Patrick and Nathan together for us, and for the first time in the history of this podcast, which has been going for six years, I'm not lying, both Patrick and Nathan are here right now with me together in my own house. Say hi, guys. Hey, guys. (laughs) First, Patrick, thank you so much for appearing on this episode of the show. Why don't you tell the folks where they can find you on the interwebs? Hey, I have a YouTube channel now where I do historical and strategy war games where I record them and play them back for your entertainment. Are you not entertained? You can find me on Twitter and on YouTube with Patrick's Tactics and Tutorials. that it? Sure. Okay. You don't want to pimp your fans-only page? No. Okay. All right. Thank thank you so much, Patrick. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man. I'll see you in another 40 episodes. Thanks for wiping your feet before you came in the house, by the way, which I noticed you didn't do. Uh, Nathan, I appreciate you being on the show as well. Thank you so much. And I want you to tell the people where they can find you online. Thank you, Shag. It was an awesome experience. I really appreciate it. You can find me online at NathanArcher.com, Instagram.com slash NathanArcher, Facebook.com slash ArcherTunes, or on Fridays and Sundays in the pages of the Tallahassee Democrat. Awesome. Fantastic. With your Ella cartoon. That's right. Yes. Love it. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Nathan. I really appreciate it. And I did notice that you did wipe your feet before you came in. Because I'm so. a kind and considerate guest. You Jay. are. What is that on your foot? <laughs> well, hey, I just teleported into your house, Shag. I don't, do you... Uh, did you guys do an episode without me? Oh, God, it's that Carlin guy again. You guys, you may remember Carlin from episode 38, maybe? I'm not sure. But that was just the last one that you did, right? Right. I was going to invite you back for the next one. That's right. I thought that was your permanent co-host. Right. Just keep waiting for that invitation. Yeah, I have been. Don't call us. We'll call you. Uh, well, it's nice to see you again. Uh, and this teleporter is really nice. Did you wipe your feet? Of course I didn't. Best friends forever. I love this. <laughs> Well, Carlin, it's nice to see you as well. Hopefully, we'll have you back in another episode. No, we won't. Yeah, sure. Yeah, 39 coming up. Yeah, absolutely. All right, folks, that is going to do it. Come back next episode when we take another sidestep, this time into Justice League Quarterly number two. Good Lord, they're pumping out a lot of JLI books at this time. And we're going to have two more guest hosts to help me cover the issues. Who will they be? Come on, people. You know how this works. You're not going to find out until next episode. And it's not Carlin. So thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Patrick. And I'm Nathan. And I'm Carlin. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something of it? it?